In memory of David Warner, who passed away July 24, 2022, whom you may recall as Thomas Eckert, amongst many other roles. Thank you for your wonderful work. I have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. And welcome to the wonderful and strange Twin Peaks Logcast. I'm Khalil, and with me today is the chess piece to my checkers board. I'm the unplugged professor, and I punch microphones. Today we're talking about part two of the secret history of Twin Peaks. If you're following along in the hardcover book edition, we're around page 238, and after if, the picture of the Bookhouse Boy books. And if you're Listening through Audible, we have just recently finished Chapter 13, and we are going to be going into Chapter 14 in the next podcast. And if you're on the CDs, did you keep track this time, nope. Khalil? I'm, I think it was midway through disc five or something. <laughs> I, it's confusing on the CDs. Either way, good news. Next time, just finish the book. Just, just, and you're done. Doesn't even matter how you do it. It's good. Just get it done. Spoilers are in order for any and all David Lynch material, including anything with Twin Peaks prior to the return, including any and all books. My Life, My Tapes, Laura Palmer's Diary. It's all fair game. Trivia sources. I just got one. I looked at the Twin Peaks wiki for today, and that was that was satisfying. That was fulfilling in of its own right. General thoughts on this section, Professor. Last time it seemed like you were liking the book. We both had some qualms. I was a bit more negative than you were, but you were definitely interested. How did you feel moving into this next section of the book? Well, might I say that as far as this book is concerned... We are going to go still a little bit in the UFO territory, but moving on to more character-centric sort of like pieces, where it seems that it gets a little bit more intimate, potentially because the Archivist yeah. may have interacted with these people inside of town, because now we're inside the present did day around this time. Did they interact with them intimately? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. I'm looking at you, Major Briggs. Yes. But... <laughs> I feel like you get to say the controversial things in the podcast now, and I'm just kind of sitting back and smiling. <laughs> what, I, what? He's a handsome man. He he. He's a handsome man. This, this is, it's not controversial to say Major Briggs is a handsome man, okay? So are you still then convinced that Major Briggs is the archivist? Very has your, mu- has very your much certainty so. increased or decreased or wavered at all? It is very much kind of stayed inside the increased nature, mostly because, and you could put an argument against me, for this sake, but having like don't piece, tempt me, <laughs> but having it like pieces of information with Doctor Jacoby mm, inside of here, right, right. That was analyzed, one of the other guesses. That's one of those other guesses, if you will. Those are some of the prime materials in which, if there's something happening with Doctor Jacoby, it seems more so analytical and focusing on that information and sort of like bringing it in for the sake of research. And it seems like less the person is talking mm. about themselves. This may contradict itself later. It may also say that for the more intimate details that is given about Doctor Jacoby, you could say could have a first-hand note. But for the most part, I don't imagine that this person came all the way from Honolulu and became the archivist. So, Jacoby's most likely not the case, unless Jacoby is referring to himself through the archivist yeah, point. The Jacobith, yes. He could be. We already kind of said that Cooper doesn't make sense. We teased out the idea of Wyndham Earl possibly last time. Are there any other contenders you think are even in the running? Not really, no. <laughs> it's Again, just no other option. There seems to be a knowledge 
and a focus that you do not see from many characters that would fit the archivist's M.O. Yeah, and you can't even look at someone like Annie, who you previously suspected as Agent TP. Annie wouldn't be the archivist most likely due to age. Yes. Right? That it just wouldn't line up as someone who's friends with (laughs) Andrew Packard for decades. I would love to see a situation where... Albert Rosenfeld is the archivist okay. in which it, like the whole thing is just filled with contempt <laughs> and just frustration over this and just outright bashing everyone about. Look, which, if the word yokels appears even once, we might've found we, our man. We may have found it, but no. Um. So my question for you is, you know, with your suspicions on it possibly being major Briggs, do you feel like you are falling for a red herring or do you think like the book kind of expects you to lean in this direction. Like, I know, again, death of the author and all, but just in terms of, if you were to try to guess intent, do you think it's trying to hide who it is? Do you think it's obvious? Do you think it's a red herring? What do you think is going on that there's like no one else you're even considering? So, in the respects of the archivist, Mm -hmm. I feel fairly confident, but it comes into question, say, for example, we know that this is a good piece of supplementary material for people who have experienced Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. We will, I think you and I might find it odd that someone outside of Twin Peaks would go into something such as this. But if someone Agent were TP to exist, does entertain the idea. But Agent if, TP says that it could be someone, an outsider, seeing the town with fresh eyes. I'm more so in the respect of someone picking up this book. Oh, I think you meant within the fiction. My yes. bad. That also is fitting. But... This seems to be aimed at core Twin Peaks fans. This seems to be aimed at core Twin Peaks fans. If it's something in which someone starts with like a secret history of Twin Peaks, sees it on the wall, sees the cool designs, I think that there's still enough information and story that goes into here that might cause intrigue. Mm. That if someone were to reverse focus it out and find out it's major breaks, that might be that sort of like climactic reveal. But I think that it's very, unless it's going to throw me through a loop, Mm. I think it's very, very plainly features major breaks, someone who's been involved mm-hmm. with the space program, who has had information over space, has had points in which like he would report over space, mm-hmm. uh, some knowledge over aviation, has... <laughs> I, I do... <laughs> keep stacking I'm picking up in. what you're saying. L- last question I have on this is that if it does turn out to be major break, let's say you're right at the end of the day, would you be happy to be correct? Would you be happy because you think that's a good choice to make the archivist or would you be disappointed that it wasn't that good of a mystery because no one else was even possible? I don't think that I perceive it in that stake. Like the thing is that I understand where people come from whenever they're like trying to become Mm -hmm. correct. I don't know if I've made this statement on pod before, but for the most part, this is a sport for me. This is something that the actions inside of it that I'm dealing with it and working out with my own brain and enjoying Mm -hmm. from it that is going to be the core point of emotion that's going to lead me to that happiness note. If you get, if I do everything here, mm-hmm. like I might for you and just for those Aww. around for the sake of just having fun, get an over-exaggerated, yeah, reaction, ooh! But for the most part, internally, I'm very just humbled in the sense of like, oh, neat. See, and then I move on to the next thing because, again, I want to keep working on this crossword of a mystery. That's the question, though, is how important is it for this to be a hard mystery 
or a hard crossword or a hard sport, whatever terminology you want to use here. Because if there's no one else you're considering and then it turns out to just be this person, is that going to be kind of underwhelming for you? Maybe, but overall, I know that right now the most overwhelming thing about this book is some of the Sam Stanley points. <laughs> is the point in which I see Roman numeral two pop up multiple times, where I see second is underlined on page 137, very notably, and then on 147, 10 pages later, something is underlined twice. One something and another something. Sure, maybe someone's trust trying to make an emphasis on something, but it's weird the number two comes up so often. So much so that the only time that I saw, like, the number one come up in Roman numerals, like, specifically Roman numerals, was with Andy's favorite book in the bookhouse. And I was like, oh, God, maybe I have to go especially intrinsic because this is the exception. Except now, at the end of the list is Hank Jennings' favorite book, and that one has the Roman numeral two. In which now I'm wondering, how many Roman numeral ones have I missed? Or is that separate from that? Do I count this as 12, like if it was on a clock? Khalil, this is the most exciting part, if you will, and I can only emphasize that inside of my sheer sense of aggression. Professor, what if it's just two? Because Twin Peaks, there's maybe it is duality. What maybe if that's all it, it is? Is but this sort of like statement emphasis, even if it is a dead end at the end mm -hmm. of the day, even if like multiple instances are red herrings. It was never the sense of finding the conclusion for me. Okay. It is the act of the chase. So so returning to overall general thoughts on this section, do you like this focus that gets shifted more to the characters of Twin Peaks, their histories, more that intimacy you're talking about? Do you like that more, less, about the same as you did part one when we're looking more at the history with like Lewis and Clark and the Chief and more different characters like that? So I think that's going to come say and we'll have larger discussions on this later mm. but it goes to say that there are multiple ways to read this book mostly because usually you read left to right usually except the final days of laura palmer <laughs> the secret of book in japan maybe i don't yeah, know maybe, yeah, but yeah. regardless like jokes aside this book has something in which it dangles continuity in your face in multiple ways. Mm -hmm. Not only in a sense that you might question a redcon, but you'll also question the intent behind it. Mm. In that same respect, that has me very excited on how to overall read these. Because as far as conversations with you that I've had over even the responses of yeah. like Mark Frost to some of the material, I feel like there is almost an extra layer of a game that I get to interact with when it comes to the secrecy. But again, is it going to be a situation where like the person gets the wrong information because they're fallible humans inside of it? Is it something where this is an alternate reality? Is this something where things are just getting redconned and changed for whatever mystical reasons? It's something enough that there is a shaky foundation but not in a way that I feel I'm going to fall. More so, the house itself is going to slide off of a hill. That sounds bad. And I've got to navigate it all the way down and see if I survive. That's... And I like that. Uh, I really do I'm like that. I'm happy for you. I'm happy for you. So, okay, good. So overall, you are liking this section a bit more I'm, than the previous. I'm liking it because it's taking us with these familiar scenarios, these familiar mm. stories. And it's shaking things up so that now I'm off my rocker. Beforehand, I was seeing how well this could fit on initial foundation. Now I'm looking at it, okay, what are the broad strokes and what are the thin strokes? Mm -hmm. What is the 
emphasis onto the piece and what are the small details that put it apart and what do those say? I'm putting it in a very less of a put up a line and connect the dots format and more so of an artistic palette on what are the intentions here? Mm. What does this line or this color say about this overall? Which again is such a dicey game for people like us who generally don't think that the author's intentions are the end all be all, but we are guessing still at them because there is so much here that leaves questions. I I think that that's just the entertainment value that comes from a point if you don't like that then this is definitely not the book for you no this is a a highly questionable book if you don't like things that are suddenly being like hey no this is not that uh, don't look at this book just turn away now just turn away (laughs) so as far as my general thoughts again this is my second time reading the book i like aspects of this more than the previous section. Other aspects I still am mixed about. So I, I am still generally on that mixed bag. I feel like so many so many internet commentators, and not saying all of them, but there's just a lot of the vocal ones. Me. They either love or hate something. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It's okay to feel mixed. It's okay to say that this thing is fine and maybe in the middle for you. I don't love or hate this book, and this section's kind of a, more of the epitome of that. So I liked having more stuff with characters that I like. No, duh. So like, I'm a Josie fan. I'm a Hank fan. I like hearing more about them because it's new stuff. Um, Whether I think it's canon or not, whether I personally invested in every angle of it, it's just cool to get Josie content. It feels like some love has been given to this character. Same for Hank. I thought the Jacoby section is really good. You and I have expressed varying opinions about Jacoby, but I think we've always found him interesting. Maybe a terrible person, maybe not, but interesting. However, the continuity errors in this leave me very mixed and very suspicious because at the end of the day, it's like I said before, I might find it interesting, but am I enjoying it? Am I compelled by it? Not always. Sometimes I feel like I'm looking at him like, huh, I see what you did there. That's a neat trick. And that's all I'm feeling. And I'm just kind of being led through retreading of things I've already heard before or felt before with a slight spin. And I'm just not really wondering. And kind of an overall aspect is the pacing and the flow. This feels kind of jumpy in a way where there's parts where I'm looking at this and I'm like, what does this have to do? Like, why is this here? Why did Mark Frost choose to put this in the book? Why did the archivist choose to put this here? This feels really meandering and out of focus mm-hmm. in a way that I find to be kind of at points aimless mm-hmm. and random. And that doesn't feel very tight. I would have, again, wanted maybe a better flow to it. Uh, also, one more thing. <laughs> I see your hands are up. One more thing. Uh, Agent TP's jumping in. Sometimes it's interesting. Sometimes it's annoying. Not the performance <laughs> fault. Not the performer's fault, but it's oftentimes it'll be like, this is just my opinion, but I think it is the spark of his ongoing friendship and affinity for the town of Twin Peaks that compelled Cooper to do this. Like, I don't want to be told what to think so much. (laughs) I I think it's an interesting idea to use her this way or use them this way. But when it comes to like the effect of it, it's like, I can reach my own conclusions. (laughs) I don't want to be told what to think and feel. Now, mind you, I think that as far as Agent TP is concerned, Personally, I think that it is somewhat mixed on the result, if you will. Mm -hmm. The execution, I'm still okay with, but mostly because of what this book is. And we're getting less into, like, the 
very historical aspects in which like it is like the mm -hmm. vast amount like stories and we're getting into very independent tales likely where say for example the jumpiness is occurring and i think that that's mainly going to be the foundation on something as we're getting close to present day and what can be physically archived especially from the archivist potential point of view mm -hmm. and resources at the time i think that that's almost fitting for the format do you think yourself that there is something with this format that is outright flawed or do you think that there could have been a potential way to sort of like streamline it in a similar format to say for example those historical points with clark and i i think that it's it's not one simple solution to put a bow on it i i think my feelings on this book are rather complex yes not because i'm an intellectual complex thought yeah you're not intellectual at all are not you? at all no 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 <laughs> excuse no. yourself <laughs> believe but, in yourself Khalil. please but, but it's, it's more the sense of i i don't think it's very simple to unravel it and look Writing is hard. Like, writing is really hard. As someone who likes to dabble in writing fiction now and then, and more often than not, has ideas in the back of his brain for years that never actually work, I cannot imagine the amount of difficulty it takes to write a book like The Secret History of Twin Peaks. There are layers upon layers of things that are going on that would make this difficult. That doesn't mean that I think people should not criticize it, though. Just because mm -hmm. writing is hard and criticizing is easy doesn't mean the criticism doesn't have value. Yes. It's just, I want to acknowledge, first and foremost, I don't think Mark Frost is like a hack. I think he's, <laughs> I think he's a talented writer, but that doesn't mean that he's free from potential criticism that may be out there. Yes. I don't have a one-size-fits-all solution. When it comes to Agent TP, I think mm -hmm. the main thing I'm looking for, because I like the idea of, of Agent TP and the archivist, I just wish there were more moments and more emphasis on where our, the archivist or agent tp could be wrong to the to the listener to the reader in the sense of sometimes it feels like agent tp is just an excuse for mark frost to tell us things or the archivist really where it's a pet peeve for me is when they're when tp will be like hmm this is just me noting it but this character seems a lot like this character in this previous story yes and it's like i get why in universe if she's supposed to be making notes and reports Yes, she's going to be reporting these connections. But for the reading side, it's being told connections that are more fun for me to figure out on my own. I'll be reading something. I'll be like, oh, cool. I think I got this figured out. It gets deflated when Agent TP tells me I'm right. Now, I know you've been playing Legend of Zelda lately with a friend. <laughs> I, I was waiting for you to bring that up naturally. <laughs> yes, I am. Yes, so sure. If, if I could bring this up, if you will, okay. and, and just like consider if you haven't played Legend of Zelda, there's like still similar formats to various RPGs out there. We're in Majora's Mask at the moment. Yeah. Yes. So <laughs> in the respect, if I can take this book, this book itself is a dungeon. The archivist is a map and agent TP is the compass. You will okay. not, the compass is directing you and so just make sure more you know fun where to go. To go. Without a compass. It already knows where the secrets are. If you read without agent TP, which is an actual way to physically yeah. read the book. It's yeah. impossible with the audiobook. You just can't just <laughs> like, la, 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 la. I'm not listening. But it's physically, you're physically able to take this adventure yep. without the compass and just the map on its own. And you actually wouldn't really lose much. You wouldn't lose too much. It's just something that can help you navigate. It's yeah. just like, say, for example, how much during navigating this dungeon is that sort of like self-discovery and as opposed towards making sure people aren't missing out along the way. It's something which I think the physical book comes out over yeah. the audio book. In this case. In this case. Mm-hmm. 
But obviously, as a fan of physical media and preservation, <laughs> you're uh, you're a little biased. I am very biased, <laughs> extremely biased. Have, I, you, have I, you felt this book? Full, full disclosure: the perforations I, on it are amazing. That the triangles okay. I mentioned before. <laughs> professor, I look closer. I, professor, it's owl cave. Professor, that's I, owl cave. I cut about three minutes of him ranting and raving about the book in the last episode, <laughs> so he actually didn't talk about those triangles before. <laughs> Don't worry about that. I did some cutting out of that. For, I went into extensive detail feel the book if you can so agent tp are you still leaning toward annie do you have any other guesses do you think it's a new character or an old character i'm feeling the more that i end up seeing from her like there's still a part of me that kind of almost like wants nanny or like seeing the interesting wave of continuity is wondering if like maybe this is alternate universe annie oh mm-hmm. ho, 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 ho. but for the most part, I'm feeling out it's either A, a new character, mm-hmm. or B, someone familiar enough with Dale Cooper where, like, the Dale Cooper information and the fandom of the Dale Cooper is something that becomes more emphasized because this person's a fan of Dale Cooper from the sounds mm-hmm. of it. Uh, they make notes over when, like, Dale Cooper is, like, m- acknowledging things such as a cherry pie, if you will, mm-hmm. and says, like, yeah, no, this is classic Dale Cooper, where I'm just like, if you're not familiar and you're somehow a fan of this strange individual yep. FBI man, is it from a result of where you work, where there's just a legend of Cooper? Mm-hmm. Or is it someone with affiliation such as Diane? Well, we also know that Agent TP has access to all of Cooper's tapes as well as records. Which so was emphasized also, by Gordon Cole, though. Right, but what I mean is that Agent TP could have read My Life, My Tapes, essentially, heard the tapes, and... It's just more like, ah, classic Cooper. The same way you or I would say classic Cooper, not because we know him personally. No, maybe it's just because... Agent TP could just be a Twin Peaks fan, is what I'm getting at. Maybe they are a big Twin Peaks fan. Maybe they are adding so much emphasis because they enjoyed this media from beforehand. Maybe it's because it's like this is active notes. We don't Mm -hmm. see much of emphasis. But my counterpoint into that is that... Other than, like, small small bits of dialogue, there's not really much emphasis, per se, on, like, emotions towards the archivist in that same respect. Like, Mm. either fandom or even writing, for the most part, it seems like mild corrections, very professional mannerisms, with the exception of a Dale Cooper moment here or a quote from a movie there. So, either a new character or someone we've noticed with Dale Cooper in the past— could potentially be any in years in the future. I'm leaning a little bit more in the Diane field if it's someone substantial. But mm. for the most part, the majority of this weird pie diagram you, is new characters. If you're looking for like female characters specifically associated with Gil Cooper, what do you know? You do get Diane, you do get Annie, you do but get But for Audrey. the most part, like people inside that field still would be very strange as well because even with the ages, male figures, we you got, have to think about ages and where they're from and yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, Two individuals that come to mind immediately that we know are male that are working inside the field are Albert Rosenfeld and Gordon Cole. But yeah. if Gordon Cole is like, yes, I am assigning myself this overall right. note, here you go. And then you me. have the question of, is it a red herring? Then the audio uses the feminine leaning voice. Yes. If it is Albert, like that does not sound like <laughs> Albert. I will say also that kind of when I like Agent TP more, it's again where there's more of an opinionated side where you could disagree with Agent TP. They don't feel like they're just a stand-in for the author. So the part where Agent TP is kind of pushing back against the stories or pushing against the archivist and saying like, you know what? Sometimes an owl is just an owl. (laughs) Like it's, she kind of, they kind of rationalize this idea that these kids at night could have just saw a big owl and that's all this is. 
So I do like the kind of rational side because I feel like a lot of readers and listeners wouldn't agree with Agent TP on that, which creates a nice friction and, and tension between you and the narrator, and I like that more. It does, but I will also note that there are points inside the audiobook you have also missed, mm. and that's in the respects of some more of the UFO signings and so on, because that's not spokely verbally because of the format of okay, the, pictures the overall notes. And the documents. Like, inside the documents, mm-hmm. yes. Because most notably... Number 18 is very likely, as they're paralleling inside of the dialogue, Mm -hmm. supposed to be Dougie Milford. Like, Dougie Milford... Oh, that's stated, yeah. Yeah, it's stated, verbally. But it doesn't go into the detail on the fact that he's actively swearing inside of the overall documents because they've had to, like, Mm. X out his mannerisms. So it's like going into, like, okay, so for this unidentified flying object... uh, like, how big was it? The size of a fucking house. Mm-hmm. Like, that is emphasized The there. size of a house. <laughs> yeah. But still. Uh. So, with all this alien content, we do get more ducky alien stuff, mostly at the beginning of this particular section, before mm. it pivots into the more personal lives in Twin Peaks. We do, uh, do kind of get a nice introduction to almost both elements overlapping with uh-huh. a Jennings incident happening in Twin Peaks, Involving a UFO uh, being pursued by a jet, and the witness on the ground is one of the Jennings heritage peoples. Ah, yes, the Jennings family. A last name we've never heard before. A last name and family heritage in which we have no involvement or idea on who could be connected to who in Twin Peaks. Yes, the Jennings. So Dougie happens to know maybe a bit more than we do then in that case, because Dougie knew this particular Jennings iteration well since childhood. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had listened to the story of, I wouldn't call them friends, but acquaintances, you know, over the years. And then he kind of just turns to him in the bar and he's like, you know what? That's a really nice story. It'd be a shame if something were to happen to you or your family. (laughs) You probably should not tell anyone about this. And then just kind of checked him off the list. So it is interesting kind of Dougie's portrayal here, again, not being fully evil, not being fully good, being very questionable, of going to his hometown, talking to someone he grew up with and knew, having a friendly chat, but very clearly warning him, bad things could happen to you if you talk too much about this. And it is kind of like semi-official business. I mean, that's the sort of style that we saw in the prior section of the book as well, in which it seemed like Dougie Milford as a character made a mild threat of someone, mm-hmm. especially on their children, yeah. and said, that, this might be a bad idea, so uh, keep that in mind. But at the same time, maybe he said it in the tone of a friend warning a friend. You know, maybe it wasn't so menacing. Okay, say it to me, not menacing. Hey, Professor, that's a really cool story that you told me yesterday about the alien thing. I am kind of worried, though, that sometimes I hear of people who, you know, have those sort of experiences with the UFOs or aliens, and, like, things happen to them and their family, and I'm a little worried that that could happen to you if you aren't careful, because I know that word gets around in this town pretty fast. So, okay. How how threatened do you feel right now? Now, here's two things I have to posit. Mm-hmm. One, do you feel that that is the verbiage used by Dougie no, Milford? No, no, I don't swear. <laughs> For number two. <laughs> how much do you think that matches the tone of a Dougie Milford? No. I was just saying it could be done. <laughs> Look, I'm it throwing around done. ideas. I just don't think he's the type of person to be no, able to. No, I, I, I don't think, think he's so. menacing even yeah. when he's it, being playful. It was a quiet intimidation, enough to get the point across, yeah. I'm sure. Uh, by the sure. way, I, I felt about, let's see, uh, two threatening out of five, so it's not a complete one in which, like, I'm calmed down. Mm-hmm. But still, I'm cautious about your intent. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Um, 
We do find out also more reason to be cautious about the intent of the Jennings family in general, uh, recurring, obviously, with Hank in the future. But we learn that the Jennings family has a history of being ne'er-do-wells. There's just this consistent idea in a lot of Twin Peaks media, especially in this book and especially in the Access Guide, where you just can't escape family history that the Horns have always burned down their competitors and the Renaults have always run illegal substances through Canada and the Jennings have also been local criminals. Like, there's just this trend where very rarely do they break away and even in this book, sometimes it even reinforces the trends of history more than the access guide where it'll change someone's parents to be more like them and how allow less differences now watch me bite my tongue as soon as like the return comes around mm -hmm. but when i consider like all these situations with like familiar ties and how that impacts their overall lives and how they end up falling into similar pitfalls james is a weirdo like he still has the overall curse his family has for the respects of like horrible things happen yeah. to him but for the most part, he's far more traveled adventurous than it seems like his so overall family So what do you think, if, if, okay, is. do you think James will show up in the return? I think James will show up in the return. Okay. What do you think James will be like? A motorcycle god. He will ascend down <laughs> with flapping wings of wheels okay. and... Uh, I cannot confirm nor deny. <laughs> cannot, cannot say No, anymore. no, I, I think that he's going to come back around. I think that there's going to be something that causes people to return and attracts people as if Laura Palmer were a magnet at the okay. center of the world. Okay. So you think James will come back very different from Ed and Nadine and by all accounts, any of his parents that we know about. Yeah. Cause we don't know much about his biological parentage very much. We get some mild tasting. A little, little bit here book. and there. If you read it as a broad line, you do. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Also, just a random note, around the time that the Jennings sighting happened when Dougie was visiting, the pattern started to form that UFOs were just being sighted around nuclear silos. Make of that what you will. Oh, yeah, especially with the prior section, which was talking about, you know, nuclear waste being dumped mm -hmm. out, if you will, affecting nature. You know, the usual bastardization of nature and the overall ill intent from humanity. Never a theme when it comes down to this lot business. I agree with you, <laughs> Professor. <laughs> So there's an incident involving missing children in Twin Peaks that's rather curious. Mm. Dougie had felt compelled to go to a plateau in the Ghostwood Pearl Lakes area, and he experienced some weird things while there. Dougie feeling that all of a sudden this fall day had turned into night. It was amazing, bizarre patterns of lights in the sky. And the source appears to be a UFO, although... There's interesting part where Agent TP suspects it may not have been a UFO. Dougie's just biased because, of course, Dougie's looking for UFOs. Yes. Could very well be biased here. But at this time, Dougie notices two boys and a girl around seven and eight looking up at it as well. Suddenly, the UFO has like, there's like a flash, and then the UFO is gone, and so are the children. And we do get a follow-up about this featured through, I believe it was Robert Jacoby's article, right? Yes, I do yes. believe that it was Robert Jacoby's article that mentions the specific incident that occurred, especially considering, huh, I, like these children who are meant to be unnamed, like we mm -hmm. will not mention their name whatsoever. Although the names are definitely given. The names are not given by him, though. No. Like that's by the archivist in which like yeah. has connections and so on. But in this case, it's like they were not giving names. Overall, it seems that everyone's okay. They end up getting, like, hydrated. They got everyone back. They're great to be back home. But they only experienced, like, an hour or so. Mm -hmm. And it's been, like, was it, was it days? Yeah, like, at least one day because they were surprised when it was Tuesday. 
So, you know, <laughs> it's been at least a day. You know, time works weird in Twin Peaks. We've said it before. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. this is part of the deal, right? You know, uh, whatever your silver circle in the middle of the woods that's the size of a fucking house uh, causes you to go into Tuesday, it's just, you know, the vibe of nature while you're out in the Twin Peaks. So the main child that gets focused upon uh, more than the other two a bit is Margaret Coulson. Mm, yes, she gets more uh, note onto it, especially inside of this book in quantity of text wise. My brain is focusing on a different one, but let's start. Let's start like with Margaret Coulson. So let's. What do you think of Margaret Coulson as being one of the kids? Margaret Coulson as an individual being focused on is something I find heavily humorous. Okay, mostly because of a mythical encounters of the, I forgot the number kind, the second kind we'll call it because the number two is all over the place. Close encounters of the third kind. There we go, it's close anyway. You end up having this character who's very mystically tied to Twin Peaks, Mm -hmm. have this overall instance within Twin Peaks, and then seems somewhat haunted and kind of like lingers in Mm -hmm. the background inside Twin Peaks, never really leaving Twin Peaks for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. The fact that I don't know whether or not these three people were sought after or if they were just all in the woods for some reason or were just hanging out. It's it, it's just and this generally... does match up with the timeline from what we can tell because I don't know if you remember the episode, but the log lady, right? Yes. The log lady does reveal that she has the markings of those three triangles on her body. And it is something that I wouldn't, it wasn't ever like a hole in the plot, but it is something that could have been explored more and just wasn't too much. Mm-hmm just kind of moved on but this does match up that something weird would happen to her to give her those markings when she was a kid yeah it matches up with her character i don't see any concerns there that it doesn't fit this it's, this could have happened yeah it's the common branding that we see we saw in a major break so we saw it on these individuals we can assume potentially annie has it and potentially cooper has it but the re but we haven't seen them on them so the outright intention on this quote-unquote branding or side effect mm-hmm of being within this realm. What is it to say? But this overall specific encounter and just like the overall youth of these characters mm-hmm. and them wandering out, I there's a curiosity on like what led to what, you know? And even though like it's possible for one child of a wild imagination, you know, may, make something up a little bit more it's than It's hard to have three people all three, there at once. Three all at once have a similar story and similar oddities of like not knowing what time it is. And then having Margaret Coulson making this strange comment to the doctor asking if the owl was coming back. Which is a very notable thing because Twin Peaks is known for its... Doctors. Exactly. Dr. Jacoby, Dr. Hayward. (laughs) But but I would also pause it forward just because I'm one to always add an asterisk to things whenever it comes to memory. We have piles of meat inside of our head. If one says something convincing enough to another person in an act that is very emotionally... Mm -hmm unstable mm-hmm. one can convince themselves enough events to alter memories well agent i'm just going to take from the weird fiction that we've already seen the strange man dancing in the yeah. middle of the chevron room that likely this is a reality yeah do you take it to be an alien reality or take it to be a lodge reality or are those two the same thing to you? alien to us maybe not extraterrestrial like the answers okay. are in the stars but extra I think- dimensional eldritch okay more so i find a lot of the compelling nature that comes from these overall beings and creatures and what is being caused for lies so much in the unknown, but almost emotionally Mm. tied to the interactions of the world around them that 
it's hard to believe in an absolute alien situation mm -hmm. where just something that existed on its own far off to just come here. I think that everything ties itself emotionally and horrifyingly mm -hmm. thanks to the actions of the people who were here beforehand. Whether you go into that magical nature or not, I put it into mysticism more than I do science fiction. Agent TP also does offer a fairly interesting rebuttal of the idea of this alien supernatural side that it could be a masking memory, right? The idea yeah. that something traumatic had happened out in the woods and the way that their brains rationalized it was to mask it over with something else. It could be covering up for something else. And obviously there's a lot we could dive into involving um, how that could relate to the Palmer family. We've had conversations in the past episodes about the possibility of Bob not even being supernatural. What if it's just a shared traumatic image that Laura, her mom, and father kind of invent because it's easier to think about a demon possessing someone than a father doing that to his own family. Yes. We so could be that this is a mask for some other kind of trauma that doesn't explain the time issue and that doesn't explain the marking, but it does have a potential way to that. I like that Agent TB brought that up. Mm-hmm. No, it is something where you then can question further mm -hmm. on how much the archivist up to that point was constantly sort of like trying to make you doubt things that at this one portion of potential doubt, I feel like that's when you kind of like get to your senses and become more reserved onto mm -hmm. it because not only with experience with Twin Peaks on how this unnatural thing comes through, but also what is the archivist's gain here. What mm -hmm. is the archivist going into? And some of that, I feel personally, deals with alterations to a project that we will be getting to in a little bit. Let's take care of these children first. We'll drop them off at daycare. <laughs> that sounds so menacing. Let's take care I of I said drop children. them off at daycare. That's why I followed Let's up with this. Let's take care for a euphemism of a volcano. <laughs> drop them in this volcano. If the daycare is in the volcano, sure. <laughs> But step into the hot seat, Billy. <laughs> anyway, but it wasn't too shortly after yeah. the overall reports of the children that something came up. The children, yeah. mind you, there's, there's a third two, one still. There's a third one. Uh, there's also a second one. But yeah, who cares about, about that? I one. have nothing to say on that one. That's the second one is a very notable name. You could Sam Stanley uh -huh. your way. Sure. I'm thinking about Sam Stanley, my boy. But when two it. of the three are legitimate characters in Twin Peaks, yes, because one of them has to fix my damn heater. So when you heard Carl the name, Rod. when you heard the name Carl. Raw, did you recognize it right away? Yes! Okay, you've mentioned before that names are not always your... I know it's not my forte, but at the very least, they accompany it with a photo Oh, the photos, I didn't see the photo. Inside okay. of it. So okay, can obvious. I identify this man by name, it's by Harry place, and also by the point in which he says that it goes off to a trailer park? Yes, I got that. I so got it very this, nice. This one's kind of weird. I wouldn't call it a retcon which is a buzzword we're going to throw around a lot here. I wouldn't call it that, though, but it is kind of weird because I don't know if there was an opening already. There was no reason that this character who lived outside of the town of Twin Peaks, who was this random kind of gruff manager of a, of a trailer park, that he would be a child in Twin Peaks who would have been involved in this. It feels very, like, random, if, what do you think of this use of the character? So, I'm in this sort of, like, mixed pile right now. I lean towards positive, but I'm still in the mixed pile at the moment. Mostly because the existence of this character inside of a place where 
the reaches of Twin Peaks are at. To mm. say that someone got away but is not completely away, there's something compelling about that. Yeah. There's something compelling in which, like, even if you move away from this moment of, like, childlike trauma and you try to make a life for yourself, like, you can't fully get away. We went through with familial, but this is now environmental. This is the world yeah. around you. So I find that portion compelling. What becomes less compelling is more so where these fonts are. Like, I always kind of, like, if you counted it in the aspect of like city town village like twin peaks is the capital of weird stuff and i thought deerwood meadows was just a nice little like small town situation you're still getting the name wrong it's deerwood meadow it's close enough (laughs) there's only one meadow (laughs) you just want it to be twin peaks deerwood meadows there's only one i feel like that's on purpose i'm not doing it on purpose Anyway, I, I get what but you're yeah. saying, and it's it's just kind of weird because, like, they can do whatever they want with Dougie. Like, Mark Frost can make Dougie <laughs> hey, man in black, crazy agent. He's already here. Why are you bringing Paul Colrod in? He's been through enough. It really is that way, though, where it's like they can do whatever they want with Dougie, and I'm fine with it. I'm willing to accept it. But Carl Rod living in a different town? <laughs> specifically Twin Peaks. If you would have grown up in anywhere else. Everyone lives only in one town their whole life. It's it's because it makes everything about the town of Twin Peaks feel so small at a certain point. I think it That's does That's one opposite. of the things I don't like is when when making Carl Rod grow up in Twin Peaks makes it feel like it, another character from Twin Peaks. It's okay to have a character matter that doesn't live in Twin <laughs> Peaks and never lived in Twin Peaks. Carl Rod does not have to be there. Might I pause it forward? No. Denied. Agent Cooper didn't live in Twin Peaks. He was just attracted to He there. wanted to buy property there. He wanted to buy property. But property. Uh, property. <laughs> but I, I do uh, get that assessment. Yeah, it's I, not a I, huge I deal. It's, it's not a make or break. It's just yes. kind of a curiosity to it's me. It's a curiosity to me. I think what makes it even more of a curiosity for me myself is the follow-up with it, in which like it can, goes through like Carl's history, mm-hmm. how he was involved with, if I'm not mistaken, the military for a little bit of time, ended up coming back over. The Coast Guard. The Coast Guard. Thank you. And ended up like taking over the overall trailer park. But the thing is that there are nice qualities said about Carl Rod, in which yeah. I wonder if he's that sensitive, is, caring, generous. Is all that the qualities same? that I would say for the man with notes covering his door and also the angry person who walks around the corner and says, Carl Rod, fix my furnace, so Carl Rod. Here's, here's the question as we bump into one of the first of our situations of things being changed this one not Mm -hmm. necessarily being like a clear continuity error but it does feel like a tone change do you think this is the same carl rod that was in fire walk with me again that carl rod never was indicated to live in twin peaks no evidence either way and he did not necessarily seem to be a caring, generous, sensitive soul. We also didn't know the guy. So it's all possible, yes. but I don't think those are the words we would have immediately leapt with. As all the evidence shows from what we've seen inside of it, it seems either A, like a different character, or B, someone talking on Carl Rod's behalf or Carl Rod himself saying like, oh yeah, you know, uh, people call me this and that because at the end of the day, he's still got business to run. Mm-hmm. If there's a point in which like this bad information gets through or it makes him seem unreliable or anything like that, it's going to be a situation that's just going to be poor from. Then again, I don't see many situations other than like the literal scandals that happen yeah. in which like a person's individual character is too hardly questioned inside the secret history. With that also being said, there is potential 
that this is a broad line situation where there's a mild difference thanks to something that happened mm -hmm. that could make the difference in the character. So in this case, I'm keeping it in the realm of we are being hijinked by someone that this is like Can false you use information. The word hijinked like that, but I'm doing it anyway. I don't care about do you your mean hoodwinked? Hoodwinked, sure. Or do you mean hijacked? Because you've kind of combined them Someone into a, a Scooby-Doo approved terminology. <laughs> I've been Scooby-Doo approved into this situation where this, this is unreliable information. And this is still talking about the same Carl yeah. Rod. Mostly because I'm looking at people who are involved mm -hmm. with this place. And are oftentimes left haunted. Because the counter argument could say that this was the butterfly effect that if he was in this situation, maybe things turned out better for him. I really doubt many things turn out better for people is, when they have these encounters. This is going to be that recurring idea of, is there another alternate dimension going on here? This is a weird example where it's not outright a change. Like, there's nothing contradicting. The guy from Firewalk with me could have been this way. Could have been this way, or someone but, said that he was this but way. But it just... It reads a little weird. It how, reads a little unclear of what is going on here. How reliable are our sources and our yeah. narrator from what we have physically seen? Yeah. Last of the UFO stuff is Project Grudge. So Project Sign produced this document saying that, yep, there, there seems to be aliens. There seems, seems to be, to be aliens. Crest. It keeps moving up. There seems to be aliens. There seems to be aliens. There seems to be aliens. Reaches the top. No. Nope. And then just like slaps it straight down, puts up a mission that's almost completely the same, but with the express goal of disproving everything mm -hmm. that they end up and seeing. And to destroy all the copies of that report. Yep. So again, if you want to be a skeptic like Agent TP, you could say, hmm, it's awfully convenient that report was destroyed, so we'll never know if it existed or not. <sighs> Like, it's easy to say this never actually happened because the only reason the copies were quote-unquote destroyed is because they never existed, you crazy people. But then, if you believe in it, you could also say, yeah, this was a thing, the government hit it, sucks. So, like, it kind of works both ways. The documents either were destroyed or never existed, and both readings, I think, are entertained. I feel like there's a lot in this book that is just putting one's hand out, tilting yep. it and their hands like, you could say. Yeah, that's, that's what this book is doing. They also <laughs> do a little bit of lip service to the Majestic 12, the MJ-12, mm. which I, I know a little bit of that conspiracy stuff from the anime Serial Experiments Lane, which delves a little bit into that sort of thing. Um, but that's, that's brought up that while Project Grudge was more public, so to speak, Behind the scenes, President Truman was still aware of a group looking into what's really going on. There yeah. was still a search for that. It's just becoming more hidden, more murky. And then there's the question, is President Truman more Freemason or is he more Illuminati or is he neither? Because it feels like there's an impulse in me with this book to assume that most presidents are one or the other, just based on the way it talked about um, TJ Maxx and it talked about TJ Maxx Jr., a.k.a. Lewis. Freemanati. It, it makes me think. It makes me wonder which one Truman side. Illuminations. Illumination. Oh my God, Khalil! I think I found them. They've been making the Minions movies all along. There's also the question, like which which uh, side in faction okayed the atomic bomb in the United States, the Illuminati or the Freemasons? A lot of questions you could raise if we are going to take this to be continuing into the 1900s. We'll see if anything more pops up in part three. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> so most of the rest of the book is dedicated to characters in Twi Twin Peaks and going through their histories, some of which we've already heard before, but are getting different versions of it, and some of which is new content for us. So kind of just starting off here with the Bookhouse Boys, we learn a potential origin for them, that during World War II, a mobilized group of young people were inspired by propaganda films and national pride to start what they called the Citizens Brigade. So, again, whether you consider this a retcon or a change, Access Guide seemed to suggest something, the show seemed to suggest something, now we're getting a third iteration of where do the Bookhouse Boys come from? Well, it turns out they're from the Citizens Brigade, and they're only like one or two, three generations deep into the 1900s. How much can these overlap? How many of these yeah. contradict? That so this is... isn't some like ancient order from the 1800s. The Citizens Brigade started in 1940s mm -hmm. and then became the Bookhouse Boys later. Now, also, we could also posit forward how much of this situations like inside the 1800s, mm -hmm. how much of that was true information or how much did they someone could have potentially made myth lore for themselves and so on in order to make things seem grander. Like, again, like there's so many like human situations I can like throw this through that it almost feels like sometimes I become too apologistic. And this is something where I remember before, I, remember, I think it was the access guide identifying Harry Truman and Ed and that group as the original Bookhouse Boys. And you and I picked at that language a bit because wouldn't the original Bookhouse Boys be in the past? Yep. Like we had a little picking point. And here, Robert Jacoby, when he's reporting, he says that the first generation of the Bookhouse Boys is Sheriff Frederick Truman and that generation from World War II. Mm -hmm. So, you know, take whichever one you want to believe, I Whatever guess. Whatever you want to believe. I'm still surprised. Like, I... Forgive me if I'm mistaken, but I don't recall at any point in the show where, like, Truman brings up he's got, like, a brother? No, it like, is not brought up like at all. not at all? Not a thing anywhere at all. So, inside of... He has Frank now. He has Frank now. Like, Frank Truman, famous Twin Peaks character, mm -hmm. Frank Truman... He's frankly true. Frankly true, is inside of this, is involved with certain actions, but as far as I'm concerned, who is Frank? Yeah. He seems really inserted, doesn't he? The most we can get from him is that there is, for the Bookhouse Boys, there actually is a nice little page that shows off everyone's favorite book. By the way, Andy's is new rule, new rule one, and Hank is Roman numeral two. Okay. But still, <laughs> they're numbered off otherwise. Uh-huh. But one of them, Frank Truman's, his favorite book is The Angle of Repose by Wallace Stegner. Okay. As the good old Wikipedia puts it, it is about Lemon Ward, who is a wheelchair-using historian who has lost connection with her son and living family and decides to write about his frontier-era grandparents. And this is for Harry, you said? No, this is for Frank. This is for Frank. Frank Truman. So if we were to try to, you know, extrapolate guesses, so likes frontier stories, interested kind of more in the past, the good old days, beyond that, who's to say? These, these sound like... That's a pretty, like, common American, like, rural boy book. It just sounds, you know what I mean? It just sounds like the makings of that. Could now, have been Louis L'Amour Westerns, and it just turned out to be this instead. Now, mind you, I still think that some of these books are very, like, match-worthy with the individuals that it comes to. Like, some very notable ones are Harry Truman. His favorite book is To Kill a Mockingbird mm -hmm. by Harper Lee. Justice. <laughs> Dale Cooper's favorite book is the official report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President John F. Kennedy, which was presented by the Warren Commission Report. 
Mm-hmm. So lies. <laughs> Toad is known for the Arkham sketchbook from uh, 1974 to 1978. What is it sketching? Uh, R. Crumb sketchbook. Sketching crumbs? It's R. Crumb. The person's name is R. Ah. Crumb. Robert Crumb has, is a comic artist, if you will. Oh, okay. So it seems like more so sketches of this overall comic artist and hmm. like his ability. It looks like he's done some like extremely like detailed looking pieses of art. Hmm. Uh, I'll turn around the computer and just tell me about three words you used to describe this face right here on the Crumb website. Mr. Crocker, dehydrated, intense. Yep, that is how you describe the self-portrait of Robert (laughs) Crumb. And I can't really argue against that point. (laughs) But still, I I think that there's some adorable details here, some details that I think can match up. James' favorite book is Charlotte's Web, by the way. And the book does acknowledge that outside the picture, too. My favorite one, though, is probably... I, I know I'm getting a little bit too far admittedly but still while we're at the books i'm gonna enjoy while the we're books. at the books in the book house two, two are notable as my favorite one is lucy because it's noted included because she buys all the books apparently the bookhouse boys don't get their own books yeah lucy acquires the books and she they don't do anything the bookhouse boys don't do anything they don't even <laughs> buy their own books the stand by stephen king is her okay. favorite book okay and ed is my favorite mostly because ed's favorite is zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I've read that book. By Robert N. Fursig. You know why it's my favorite? Mm. Because in parentheses, it says, read it five times. Next time, I think I'm really going to figure it out. Yeah, so that sounds his, like Ed. His favorite book is something that he can't figure out, but he wants to. Mm-hmm. And he's like actively pursuing. No, I can very, understand very that. Very, fitting for the character, but still an extra bit of flavor that's absent from the rest of the characters. No, I, I actually received that book upon recommendation. Someone had told me about it. And um, having read it myself, I can kind of understand where Ed's coming from. It's a book you're meant to reread and reprocess. The most suspicious one is Hank's book, which is Double Indemnity, a novel by James M. Cain. But which is made into a movie. Which is made Double into indemnity. a movie. Yes, that you want to see. I'm going to say that this book looks very tattered and it deals with crime. We are told that Hank has a very good sense of like appreciation for American literature. Mm-hmm. We are given some specific points of authors he likes and doesn't like. So he has a rather interesting cultivated taste. He might be the biggest reader of this group. So to have like overall these overall takes and it's tastes. It's probably tattered because he read it a lot. No, absolutely. That makes sense. Like having it tattered, it, it makes sense. And it's like a nice sort of like visual commentary that's absent from the rest of the books. Mm-hmm. But what I still do enjoy that his favorite book is a bit of exciting fiction over the noir scene, if you will. Noir, yep. Yep. And I, I, I don't know. I think that there's nice flavor, but that also just brings me back to Frank Truman. Frank Truman, I need to uncover what you're all about. And I'm afraid that Angle of Repose by Wallace Stegner is going to lead me... <laughs> crazy okay putting up this like facade of a person is there much information you get off of frank from this book or is it just more so frank exists because that's from some, from this section so far from this section so far i don't have much to add on frank truman that's the thing that gets me the presence of a character maybe that's why he's so unknown is because what's to say about frank but i think the absence of content is as significant to me mm-hmm. as the presence of content okay. Interesting. So that's what's on my mind with I, the you know, Bookhouse I, I Boys. Keep, I keep ranting and raving about the Bookhouse Boys don't do anything. And like, I did come to terms with my own beliefs and maybe I feel that way, maybe I don't. Part of it's 
wild reactions out of frustration of what they could have tried to help and prevent. But what I will say that kind of adds fuel to the fire that I thought was interesting is there's a note being made that some say the greatest achievement of the Bookhouse Boys was when they filled up the Twin Peaks high school football team. And I'm just like, wait, their best achievement yes. was high school football? Their best achievement? Well, apparently it's a small town. Now, to be fair. And the, the, like, again, the book from the Welcome to Twin Peaks Access Guide literally goes crazy about like, yes, the greatest day in all sports, this one football game. It's just unclear how secret this organization is. Like, does everyone in town know who the Bookhouse Boys are? Like, is it public that Ed is a member of the Bookhouse Boys? Do they know that? Or is this like a secret club or not? I don't know. Because like maybe the reason that the football seems to be their biggest achievement is because they're real important things that save people and help people from the darkness. They're secret. That's the best I could possibly give. But I have zero evidence of this. <laughs> All we have is when Ed wore that stupid mustache and went to the casino. I just don't got <laughs> enough to go with here. And you also have to question whether or not maybe it's also the tone. If someone says this is the most important thing, mm -hmm. are they being completely honest and serious about yeah. that? Like, again, I believe it. Because thanks to the access guide and how much of a great emphasis this mighty football game gave. But on the same notion, mm -hmm. I can also hear someone saying yeah and the greatest thing that these people did they fight against evil and so on is fill up a football team <laughs> yeah it's 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 questioning tone it's definitely it's not said in the audiobook uh mm -hmm. in a sort of sarcastic way yes so who knows hank jennings get a lot of information about hank in this particular book mm -hmm. um more background on his life that his mother worked at the double r diner for over three decades so that explained kind of his connection to the diner and it's kind of believed that he might have ended up coming into crime or at least falling off the track earlier if it hadn't been for football, that throughout high school it was an outlet for him to get rid of some of his aggression, mm -hmm. but then also was something that gave him a reputation. People liked him because of it. Yes. It was kind of a way to be socially accepted. Yes. And Hank Jennings had worked with the Renault family with Jacques to basically have him lose the football game on purpose for mutual benefit. Yes, it would seem that for the most part, like this person who overall by a foundation socially and working with other individuals, being invited into the Bookhouse Boys, the most up and up he's been able to get through, unfortunately, the seeds of crime, especially like the affiliations, likely that deal also with family, mm -hmm. just because there seems to be like debts that need to be paid and so on. Hank needs to overall save up money and trying to get those things all sorted. The fact that... The Renault family's reach and how they're able to overall interact with all sorts of facets. One notable time inside of it, like, apparently, again, football is amazing in Twin Peaks, apparently. Football is very important in Twin Peaks. And I put this huge amount of emphasis forward because, for some reason, to John's ears, hearing that, knowing Hank is in his position... You mean Jacques, right? Jacques, thank yeah. you. Uh, Jacques... And Jacques is just being told a situation where it's like, hey, you throw this game, I can uh, set some money your way. Like having that power mm -hmm. and control to just like ruin these things, not only is it just like a fun, a high for him, but also noticeably, this is where Hank's life kind of descends into He's, that he crime He saw area. something in Hank. He saw something that if he could 
work with Hank on this sort of deal. They might have future deals in the long run. So for Jacques Renault, it was, it was very beneficial. He got to bet against this team that everyone assumed was going to win, make a quick buck out of that, throw a, throw a nice new set of wheels over Hank's direction, and recruit possibly a lifetime business partner. Because he continues to descend and fall down because we've heard about there was a reaction with Hank and how Hank ended up falling into a descent mm -hmm. and things went horrible for Hank. All the good things that seemed to be inside of Hank's life when he made this mistake went out when it seems Truman decked and oh, like he went up. after him. Yep, went Harry, after him. Harry physically. Truman had to be pulled off. Yes. Uh, Hank, because apparently he was about the point of possibly like beating Hank to death. And we had to have Ed and his brother Frank Truman pull him off to make sure that he didn't do that. Now, mind you, they were young. This is something in which, like, also people are very passionate about. Yeah. Very clearly, I didn't try to. Fleets of fancy are, uh, when it comes to things such as this, these are important to them and very important. Well, I think it's and it also could mean they... the world to them, especially growing out of college. But the thing is also. I can't help but also take a step back in the most probably maybe absent of emotion. Maybe that's my fault. But absent of emotion and kind of looking at it is like, you're pushing this guy who was your friend away during this mistake. Yeah. And so hard that I kind of also shunt a bit of blame over to like Harry. their court as well. Harry specifically. Harry specifically. From what we're told, I mean. From that, what we're told, yes. But still, there's more than just Harry inside the Bookhouse Boys. You're telling me that no one else, that the creed of the Bookhouse Boys staying together meant that there's an absolute absence of communication out to Hank. Well. I think that they're still also in the sake of, like, not following up with Hank from these people that call themselves brothers, uh -huh. these Bookhouse Boys. Yeah. I think that there's still a little fault there. Again, especially Truman, but I think that there still is a fault within the Bookhouse Boys. I agree with you. I want to preface all this saying I agree with you. Mm -hmm. However, what I also want to throw into the picture too is that my brain was going to the idea that maybe the reason he did attack him with such ferocity yeah. is because of the closeness he felt and that deepened the betrayal. So I almost imagine it's a scenario, mm -hmm. and again, a lot of it is imagining. You have to fill the blanks in for yourself as a yeah. reader, is that Harry felt so connected and close to Hank and trusted him so much that mm. to do this was such a betrayal that affected him so emotionally that the only way he knew how to express it was through this sort of violence mm. that I almost imagine it was an outburst that was all of these connections and closeness being burned up at once. So again, it doesn't justify what Harry's doing at all. No. It doesn't justify what the group is doing, but I almost wonder if the reason it was so impassioned isn't inspired isn't because they weren't close, yes. but because they were close. Yes. And that sense of betrayal. And there's there's oftentimes that'll happen in life where Agreed. you'll have a close-knit group, someone acts out of line, and the rest of the group, in order to maintain itself, sh just shunts that person away. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's unfortunate, it's tragic, and in this particular case, I mean, this football match was their lives, and it was such a huge deal to them. I understand it, but in the process, I think that the damage they did to Hank was was almost irreparable. There is something that can be said from this situation to use Twin Peaks parallels for as crime sort of like seep through as that overall oil was being spread, this crude motor oil <laughs> is being spread across the floor between the two separate sparks of both sides of these parties being set aflame, a bridge could not be repaired inside of a 
inferno. There was an active fire inside of this relationship until things completely burned off and burnt away. We don't see that too much inside of the show itself, and I kind of like reading off into this side bit of history because I can almost see this could be potentially either Truman being especially proud or Truman... Mm -hmm being especially reserved onto it. It leaves some openness. It leaves some openness, I which think I that find tantalizing. The only other way to do that would be if the actor were, would be able to balance out those two possibilities with their expressions. Yes. Uh, in their tone. You know, you and I have both expressed uh, different points, wishes about Twin Peaks. You know, you had, while watching the show, you had wanted there to be and expected there to be some flashback episodes that didn't happen. And then I had talked before about how I wish they would have done more with the Bookhouse Boys in season two. This is kind of a little bit of both of us getting what we want in the sense of <laughs> this is flashbacks on the Bookhouse Boys that I think adds more depth to Hank and adds more depth to Harry. Yes, absolutely. I think it's just beneficial for both characters. I do think this is where, again, you know, questioning the narrators is important. Mm -hmm. Cooper is the one writing a lot of these reports, right? He, he We find out that he's writing stuff on Andrew Packard, and apparently Cooper suggests that Hank is like a sociopath who imitates emotions. Mm. We, we get that, and I find it very curious because do we read that as Hank is like that? He is sociopathic. He is imitating his emotions. He doesn't really love Norma. He's pretending to, to get his way. We've speculated in the past. Or is Cooper misjudging him and kind of just assuming that someone who's this way, they must be a sociopath. I think it's important to say, I do genuinely think Hank puts on a face, Hank puts on a facade. I do think that he wears it inside of a fashion that Cooper can compare these individuals, mostly because with his upbringing and the family that he's had mm -hmm. to see day in and day out, whether it is his crime family or his biological family, for the most part, facades were kind of the game, making sure that either you can get away with the things you need to, or if it's going to be something where you're working with someone and you've got to put on a smile whether you like the work or not, because at this point you're in way too deep. I think what is notable is how Hank closes inside of it, which I do really like from this book, where Hank ends up saying that he's guilty mm -hmm. and coming up before a trial and admi admitting towards that, getting 25 years in prison, and with a final note towards Norma. Well, he got sentenced 25 years. He's only made it three. He's only made it three, but still. He got stabbed and killed at, at three years in. He, he, oh, he got stabbed and killed. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that he was sentenced to 25 years, but then three, three years, years into in. the term, he was stabbed by a, a distant cousin of the Renault family. That's... Did you yeah. miss that part? I suppose I missed that part. Which, so, the reason I find that funny, notable. though, is that means there's more Renaults. There's, more, there's, there's always more Renaults. Always... There's always more Renaults. But ju just so we're not going too far from the point, it's the letter he leaves Norma. Yes. And that's literally caps itself off, admitting towards his faults, admitting the, the, his overall flaws. It's something in which, like, it's not saying, like, calling back or, like, please forgive me or anything like that. He it's, says he can't. Like, he says he doesn't have the right to ask for He doesn't have act right for that, and he just simply says three times, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, almost in a very, like, repetitive fashion where you could almost, like, emulate someone who is just crying mm -hmm. out in a very literal fashion where it's just the... Comfort and repetition, but also the understanding of what's 
going mm-hmm. down. At the end of the day, do I be, believe in, am I compelled by it? Judging by overall Hank's like reactions inside of what's mm-hmm. inside the secret history of Twin Peaks, I can be compelled to say, yeah, no. I, I believe him. I believe him too. And that's where that side is just not as emphasized inside of, say, for example, Cooper's reports, either A, because... Hank has to keep up this overall Mm -hmm. stance in order to be in the line of work he is. Not to mention, I wonder how much also fuel do we put to the fire with his closeness with Truman as well. I was thinking the exact same thing. That's what I was going to butt in earlier, but uh, I I, I feel like Cooper's too close to Harry to look at this as the situation is. And Mm -hmm. I also think there might be part of Cooper, this is a might, there might be part of Cooper who thinks of things too much in terms of a black and white binary that he may not be able to see the possibility that Hank deep down does have some humanity and care. Whereas it's just easier almost to detach and think that Hank is nothing but a cold criminal. Mm. It might be almost easier for Cooper's mind to process Hank as an extension of evil because we know at least if we go my mind off my tapes that Cooper does seem to view this sort of evil in the world that just possesses people. And given his experience with Wyndham Earl and he's seen that kind of evil firsthand, I don't know if he's able to rationalize and accept the idea that someone could deep down know they're wrong, love their wife, feel like an absolute piece of garbage, but do it anyway because they don't know how to not. They don't know how to stop. And they're in too deep at this point with the Renault family that if they try to back out or back out with Ben or back out with Leo or back out with these people, these are dangerous people. So the only way to secure that you're going to be fine is to make your blood oaths. To keep going, you're already down that path. You got the ball, you got to score the touchdown. And it just makes me wonder, you know, if maybe Cooper and Harry never were able to really understand that. There's there's a lot of stuff in this book also about Norma, uh, Nadine, and Ed. Yes. Obviously, Hank is involved with this. Nadine's involved with this. Yes. And we it- get kind of a cross between Cooper's account, but also Hawk's account, and I, I don't have a lot to say about all of these events. Some of it's stuff we've heard of, of before. Some of it is different from the accounts we've heard before. I'll have more to say when we get to continuity. But it does go on for a substantial amount about the intersecting lives and drama of these mainly two, but also four people. Which intersects interlocking lives and how they impact one another, if you will, I think is an important aspect of Twin Peaks. It's just a question of how good in a place is it inside of something posited as the secret history of Twin Peaks and how much can our archivist argue for, say, for example, how much information is inside of this? Because it felt like maybe about a half hour was spent on Ed and Norma, and I, I don't know, I didn't time it, but it felt like an awful lot amount of time. And for me personally, I found it to be not that interesting because I have heard a similar story about them before. I'm not personally very interested in Ed and Norma's backstory, let alone, again, it's stuff I've already heard before. The stuff with Hank and the stuff we'll get to later with Josie, that's new. This is not, Mm -hmm. but it kind of is, and it kind of isn't. And at the end of the day, when I look at the ways in which it's different, I really don't know what to, like, do with it. So I found it just kind of retreading ground, and I don't know what it adds to the book. I don't know what this does for the book. Now, there's certain aspects I would argue and positive forward in this respect. For one, Mm. revisiting common grounds, Mm -hmm. you're getting, for one, with how this book does with its contradictions, you're getting something consistent, where it's saying... This is where the things align in. Mm-hmm. So revisiting those sort of like points and making sure that those overall tags are where people can put pins in, there can be a potential use mm-hmm. for that. 
for another, it's the branching paths that each of these characters take. I would call Nadine in the area of import for the strange things going on inside of Twin Peaks and how they're connected to other characters and the larger narrative inside of the secret history in Twin Peaks. I think Nadine is offered as a main course, Hank and Norma, side dishes on what's directly impacting her life. And then we get a dessert of Hank, in which we don't need it. It's decadent. Mm -hmm. It can be yummy in certain parts of and aspects of it, but and you kind of have to time Hank right to bring it in to the meal. But for the most part, technically, you could probably shave Hank out. It's just enough of the rabbit hole that this archivist isn't like going crazy into then the Jacques end, which will then go into the Black end and that end. So I, I think that that's why like a trail stops at Hank and also where the archivist is just mm -hmm. archiving at this point. That being said, mm -hmm. between these interlocking lives of Ed and Norma, it is a lot of the same, but it's still enough of, I would say, Nadine having both the foreground and the background that I am more than comfortable with revisiting these things, mostly because there's a few shifts inside of, like, Nadine's account if we are to take Ed's words inside of the show as gospel. There's, there's some interesting perspectives. Again, also having Cooper and Hawk jumping in and with Agent TP in the air. Like, there's just so many other voices giving their interpretations that it does start to become rather hard to paint one singular universal picture. Right? Exactly. Like, again, where the biases Different are, where accounts. the biases aren't. But I, I'm still glad to hear from Hawk. I, well, I think that and this the, is something I wanted to bring up at some point. Do we even want it. to call him Hawk anymore? So we find out that Frank Truman, ever-elusive figure in the professor's life here, Frank Truman was the one who gave Tommy Hill... <laughs> the nickname Tommy Hawk. Yep. So, which, you know, at that point, the character remarks like annoyed that like, this is how he's treated as some racist stereotype, mm -hmm. but he continuously goes by the name Hawk for the next several decades. So like, what do you make of it? Cause like when Harry calls him Hawk, Harry never calls yes. him Tommy like, or Mr. Hill. So like, or yes. deputy Hill. So like, do you think that at this point Hawk is likes the name and is comfortable with it? Or do you think he just grudgingly accepts it? Like, how does he feel? Because <laughs> it feels weird to call him Tommy Hill or Deputy Hill. Because mm. I don't hear anyone in the Twin Peaks community call him anything other no than one's Hawk. Good, that, that's the thing. Like, not only is this a specific book, not everyone is going to experience with the material. It's also viable to say that I don't know if Frank exists inside of our potential timeline, if we are to <laughs> observe it in this end, and also, by extension, how much Hawk invests into this overall nickname or just, like, has outright accepted it amongst all members of the community calling him this name. Then again, the only people we hear calling him that, maybe there are people that go, like, oh, okay, here, go, Mr. L. For the sake of the, not only the unknown, but also the realm where we would just catch so many people yeah, off guard and Deputy like not Hill be able every to time. communicate. I would love to address this individual as Deputy Hill, if that is the preferred outcome. But at the end of the day, no one on our podcast will be able to yeah. <laughs> connect. Well, I, would, I shouldn't say no one. People like me uh -huh. would not be able to connect those well, dots just, because I would get lost in the details. Like Deputy Hill, it's like, interesting that Andy's he even gets last name was Hill. It's interesting he even gets noted though. It's almost like I think Mark Frost went through an effort to try to right some past wrongs, and when he couldn't right them, at least acknowledge them. And I appreciate so that. So it's like I, I almost feel like he understood looking back that the fact that people call him Hawk because Tommy Hawk, 
And I didn't notice that before. No, myself. I never, I never did either. And I've read the book before. I just forgot it. But like, <laughs> I, you know, I don't think of it either. I just think of him. That's his name. I don't mm. think of it in a, in a negative way. And I don't think the characters in Twin Peaks mean it in a racist way either. I think it's just that a name is stuck around for so long. It just kind of lingers to that point. Yes. Uh, and every for, name has their story. For this time, for this podcast, you heard our bid on towards it. I'll do my best during this podcast to say Tommy. But if we say Hawk in the future oh, podcast. I'm just going to say Hawk. Very well. <laughs> I just wanted to acknowledge that it's there. We're on a first name basis, me and Tommy. So. <laughs> I don't know, man. But uh, regardless, uh, we get a nice air of dialogue, which breaks itself off from the other stylings from beforehand. And I think that there is some good character writing for Tommy. And what did you think of uh, the way that both Hawk and Audrey swear? Both Hawk. Because obviously the show had to follow, you know, CBS guidelines. They couldn't just, you know, or, or daytime television, guide, not, not daytime um, television guidelines in general, that they couldn't like have that kind of language. Whereas Hawk will freely use the F bomb. He'll freely, you know, say whatever. And then Audrey starts off right away with the B word, you know, just right off the bat. Yeah. As far as these characters go, one of them, I can see basically saying something that is very insightful, but in another breath, kind of just being the blunt person in the mm -hmm. room. And the other one, it's a, a young adult, older teenage woman mm -hmm. who is overall very much in a light that I can see the word bitch coming out. No, like, I think they both make sense. Like, I think I, that they both make sense. I don't think it's I just out of wanted place. to acknowledge the fact that there is a difference here that Hawk does swear frequently. Like, it's not like a... It's a pretty common element of the way that this character writes and speaks in the book. Mm -hmm. And does it still feel like Hawk to you? Yes. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't hurt the fact that we have the audio, which is literally, you know... Michael Horse doing the voice. It most certainly helps, and maybe that's. I really enjoyed his start. vocal performance. Also. It was very, very good. I, I think that his is one that has a bit more personality because there's more sense of humor in his voice, and he's more willing to acknowledge the humor. A mm. lot of this book is drier than the show, so I think that his character and his voice kind of having a little bit more levity at points is nice. Like mm. even the way that Hawk will refer to Ed, like you know, I love the big lug, but he's got some problems. You know, like he'll just kind of have like a friendly demeanor to him. And the uh, best part is, is that now we can add an additional quality to Frank Truman. He's a dick. <laughs> there we go. Likes this book is a dick. I thought that Hawk's perspective kind of made my mind turn in a different direction about Ed a little bit as well. Yes. In the sense that I'm not necessarily saying Hawk views it this way. But it almost makes it sound a bit sadder, not in the sense of tragedy, but almost like it's kind of, I don't want to be harsh and say pathetic, but kind of like when I think of this man who's like in his 40s, still decades later, pining after and obsessing over and longing for his high school sweetheart. Look, if I know someone who's in their late 20s and they're still obsessed over their high school girlfriend, my instinct would be to say, like, okay, you got to, like, let it go. Like, You've got to move on. And then I, then you double the age. I'm just looking at this like your whole life has gone away. And I understand, you know, that he's, he's not in a very happy marriage. And I understand that yeah. that's a big part of it, too. But it is there's a sort of sadness to the idea that someone would be so clinging on yes. to, this, to, this, to this element that for, like, over two decades, three decades, whatever it might be of his life, he's still not able to achieve happiness because if he didn't get the high school girl. There's no healthy resources in Twin Peaks, even when it comes to camaraderie and friends. Like, it shows that Hawk cares, but it's almost as if a standard that they're just in the sidelines recognizing yeah. these situations, but not even, like, trying to compel their friends one way or another. For the most part, this is an observation of someone who cares, 
but describes Ed in this light as a sad dog who is loyal, mm-hmm. but will oftentimes still not take any action. Will more so wander over to the little bed off in the corner, yep. spin around a few times and just sit and plant. Not going to cause any trouble, not going to bark, not going to bite. It's just going to rest away until probably the person rots away. We do see some mild action mm-hmm. when it comes down to the characters, but at the end of the day, both Norma and Ed, we've said it like crazy. They are too afraid to act based off of their current responsibilities. And there's probably even like certain fears that we get like as extra context inside of this. Mm-hmm. Remember, Norma's the one running the double R, but if it's being passed down from, say for example, Hank's family, yeah. and then Norma breaks things off with Hank to try to go off to be with Ed, she would likely lose everything. There, I, context, that's actually especially. an interesting angle, too. We don't know exactly how that works at that point in time. Yeah. She, could potentially she doesn't lose own everything. the place in the original Twin Peaks. She's just like a manager. Well, is she a manager? She, like she's, basically, she's basically the head person there. Like, but I don't know if she owns it. Like I don't know if she, she has the She is someone rights. who... If we are to go to the yeah. continuity, if there's no changes inside of this, we're going to broad strokes. If Hank's like family is the one who ends up working there for so yeah. long, Norma's the one heading it, and she's married to Hank. Likelihood is it is inside the Jennings name, but yep. will likely, if it ever goes into the point of a council, it would likely, in a divorce paper, go to Hank. Now here's the real question. Now, Let's say that happened, based on what we know of Hank from this book. Yes. Do you think Hank would take the diner away from her? Hmm? I would say at this point, Hank would hold on to his assets mostly because of the life that he ends up mm-hmm. living. It's not to say he doesn't care about Norma and he doesn't care about how like Norma behaves. But for one, I don't think he can healthily respond with the overall mental place he's in right mm-hmm. now. And also, number two, if he gets rid of such a potentially large asset mm-hmm. to potentially use and utilize, then he's left more so lost and worried like we even see i don't know who the house would go to but we see hank jennings sleeping at the double r that's true like he's actively resting inside that place maybe while things are being mended over but regardless Mm -hmm. he sleeps at the double r this is something at least could be important enough to him that he wants to sort of like reel in if he gives that up he's basically got nothing now we move this also over to Ed. Ed, in this respect, thanks to what happened with Nadine and the arc that happened with Nadine, Ed puts so much blame onto himself that loyalty angle causes him a large anchor mm-hmm. to the point that if he were to break things off at any stage, especially in the latter ends on Twin Peaks, there would be no end to that being inside of his forethought. Like there's, if if, if he ended up leaving Nadine and something awful happens. Yes. He will blame himself for the rest of his life. Yes, and we've already seen how he copes yeah. with overall emotion. It's something in which th- we could almost call this as the good old Hurley curse in the fake in the fate that he's caught between these overall rocks and hard places because neither of these individuals can be happy. It wasn't at feeling as cemented inside the show as it does with the context of pieces such as the book, thanks mm-hmm. to those like additional stakes sort of being posited, especially what information we get from Nadine and though like even Nadine right. recognizes not the fault. It's something still important for Ed's character to be emphasized here. It's the podcasters from out of time. 
What? Listeners, listeners, you may not Pardon? know it, but I think a week has passed since we last have spoken. Yeah, we stepped away from the podcast, Khalil. It's not time travel, it's just travel. So we normally record our <laughs> podcast in one go. We had to do a split up on this one. The reason that kind of matters is we realized a few things in between this time we've been away. For one, I realized I was right. It was John Renault. It was John Renault, not Jacques Renault, that fixed the football game with Hank. My brain assumed <laughs> Jacques because Jacques is the one I see in the town of Twin Peaks. And that's so that's where my brain was. But no, the voice in the audio book did lean toward John's interpretation, and it is in fact John Renault. Congratulations, John Renault. You, for some reason, are really involved with just some random-ass football game. Good job. Well, this does go to show Hank's connection to John Renault when we get to the Ernan Isles saga. The Ernan Isles saga being the most loved of all Twin Peaks storylines. And the willingness of John to impact a place such as Twin Peaks, despite the fact that it seems like it, a lot of his dealings were just more so dealing in Canada as opposed towards his brothers, which just were lurking in Twin Peaks. I mean, and, I don't know about the living situation. And but, we've seen Jacques. But do you think do you think that Jacques like lives inside like the rooftop of the roadhouse no. along with his Well, we've seen brother? Jacques' place. We know where he lives. Okay, okay. No, he does live in the middle of the woods. Where does his brother live? Well, no, Jacques, does, well, I don't know. I mean, my point is... <laughs> does he my, live inside my, my, the janitor's closet in the roadhouse? My, my point is <laughs> that we've seen Jacques interact with Bobby in kind of a similar way. But, like, with Bobby, it's been the drug run. Mm. So there's been kind of that business angle. Whereas it really does show that Jean was willing to... I don't say stoop. He does, obviously, worse things. But... <laughs> go for such small things as fixing a football game. Like it seems like such a, an everyday sort of thing compared to running cocaine across the border. But again, it's that investment opportunity in Hank, the way that maybe Jacques was investing in Bobby. One of them, thankfully, it seems like by the end of season two, Bobby's more on the up and up than Hank is. I know it's kind of a weird comparison, but it makes me think of a John Renault kind of like a Roman style emperor with a flick of the wrist and just yeah. a fleet of fancy. You can just be like, I want it this way. And yes. so it shall be. Yes. It doesn't even matter. It's not really a big deal. He just <laughs> feels like it. Also realize another mistake of mine. I had put it in my notes, but I had not commented on, we're talking about Margaret Colson's experience as a child, that her name is Margaret Colson. I don't think I said anything about that. And it should be noted that normally the character's been referred to as Margaret Lannerman up to this point. Margaret Colson has never been referenced. Now we do know that Margaret Lannerman was married albeit briefly, and her, her husband, the firefighter, had that tragic accident. It's entirely possible Margaret Coulson is her original maiden name, just with the caveat, though, that the actor was Catherine Coulson. So this is a weird case where the <laughs> actor's last name was grafted onto the character that she played. Now, yeah, and that's where I'm kind of leaning more so, because I imagine she just kept her husband's name. And just kind of continue on. That's where the Lannerman right. comes from. But at the same... And then the reference of Coulson being like, yeah, this is also the actress's name. It's just a fun bit of layers. I think that... It adds another just, meta element, too, where, like, this book knows who the casting is. And it does it in some interesting ways, I think, or at the very least, intentionally, unintentionally. I think many cases intentionally, especially when it came to, like, Ed and Nadine meeting up. Because the funny little detail of Ed and Nadine meeting up is it was thanks to a broken lawnmower, if you will, that he felt so bad that he got to fix up. Speaking of broken lawnmowers, we had the actor for Ed... 
be the one who sells the new lawnmower after the one man's lawnmower ended up breaking down, if you will. Mm-hmm. From so you think it might be a straight story callback? I, I think it's a straight story callback. Elsewise, it's a very interesting choice of broken piece of operation, especially with what Ed runs. Like, it could have been any reason for Ed and Nadine to run into each mm-hmm. other when it came to his life, his operations, mm-hmm. his general well-being. A broken lawnmower is something very humorous, at the very least, for myself. Maybe it is unintentional and it's a weird coincidence, but then I look at uh, good old Colson over there. Right. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, maybe there are, like, these little sprinklings found throughout the book. Previously... On the podcast, i.e. five minutes ago or so for you, listener. (laughs) Uh, We were talking about Hank and Ed and Norma and all those characters. And uh, there's some things to say about Nadine. We hear from Andy that uh, he tells Hawk that Nadine's mother had mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And also Andy speaks about how Nadine's father was known to be unstable and also known to be a big drinker. I don't think the word alcoholic is ever used specifically, just the idea of him being a heavy drinker with Mm -hmm. possible instability. Hawk also notes at this point that Andy's a bit of a gossip when it comes to these things. (laughs) So in terms of Nadine's character, what do you make of this, I guess I'll say reveal? I don't know if it was ever a mystery what her parents were like. I never found myself wondering that question. But now we do have an answer to what Nadine's background might be a bit like. Well, I think that especially with the background we receive from snippets of information from here, as well as the Jacoby files, I'll call them, it was earlier on that Jacoby was even involved with Nadine and her overall position, her overall mental health, it would seem, because mm-hmm. post getting her eye shot out, it seems that some psychiatric involvement was necessary at one point or another. But... To have pieces of her information being that her father was an inventor, the passive mental illness, and the fact that her personality has shifted and changed enough from Mm -hmm. being the jealous person when being seen with Norma and Ed, being someone who was more possessive with Ed in that regard, and that actively changing in the pursuit and goal of this great livelihood Mm -hmm. that she hoped to also bring to ed of being this inventor of being well off like her family was how Mm -hmm. her family was so fortunate to be i wonder if nadine as we see her inside of the show was ever nadine like the original nadine Mm -hmm. because we see her personality change and also kind of her mannerisms shift not that she's being taken back in time but she's being an ideal self of her in high school Mm -hmm. later on with the second season if the first season is an inventor-like position like her father is it just possible that that's just the pre-existing condition sort of like mentally benjamin buttoning her i i I don't know the correct phrase for making her regress in her overall Mm -hmm. mental state not to be insensitive about the material i just merely don't know how to communicate the mental well-being of someone such as nadine I think Nadine's just kind of a messy character from a writing standpoint. And I personally like Nadine. I find Nadine to be interesting as a character. But I also do acknowledge, as we've talked about before in the podcast, that when it comes to sensitivity, the show itself kind of sends mixed messages on it. Having the whole cheerleader arc in season two running as a comedy, I think it's, I think it feels like it's meant to be a comedy Mm -hmm. and it's hard 
to know how to distinguish that because then you also have Benjamin Horn's um, Confederate arc. Is that also read to be comedy? I think so, but maybe not as much. And it, it, I think Nadine is just kind of messy to talk about in general, no matter how, where you kind of fall on that spectrum yes. of thinking about her character. Yes, and I think that that's just because I feel that a lot of the usage of mental health with Nadine yeah. is also sort of like telling a story in the broader spectrum of Twin Peaks. If we take the information from this book and we take the information that we receive from Nadine, having an optimized reality for oneself and trying to be one's best self despite the problems of the areas around them, mm -hmm. ignoring the darkness and mostly trying to aim yourself to be your best self in your own personal light can lead to some very unhealthy patterns well, for them. And I think it's also notable where Dr. Jacoby sees someone like Nadine, sees Nadine's history, and when she's regressing herself, when she is putting mm -hmm. herself into these spots, that's when... Jacoby sort of like shakes his head and like looking at this history, she would have been a perfect test subject for his way of thinking his overall sight and his usage of his glasses for these rose colored lenses and aqua colored lenses. He wanted to test out his glasses on her and it's, it's unclear with a lot of things with Jacoby, but specifically with that glasses, is he trying to help her because he legitimately believes those glasses would be helpful? Or is she a guinea pig to him where it's like, boy, I'd love to try those glasses on this one. Well, it's, it's both maybe. It might be both, but I do think that it's the difference between how Jacoby sees things and how Nadine sees things for a framing device. Nadine sees things in a false reality and this sort of like Twin Peaksian reality, dressing up in a pretty dress and believing in a great dream. While Jacoby is self-appraised for seeing reality as it is, seeing things quite bluntly. I'm never going to say he's a great guy, but at the very least, I do think that there is a truth that's trying to be told on him sort of he's like seeing direct. things very bluntly and direct. Yes. I, I, as you were talking, I kind of, my mind was going in different directions and I think there's a case to be made. I'm not sure if it's 100% where I am at this point, but I can entertain it. Yes. There's a case to be made that Nadine might be one of the most Twin Peaks characters mm -hmm. in the sense that you've got a character who lives in a dream, mm -hmm. in multiple dreams. You've mm -hmm. got the dream of her trying to be this inventor like her father was. And and I admit, I don't remember the inventor section of the book as well, um, especially now that more time has passed, I've kind of forgotten. Was 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 her father successful? Yes. Okay. That's actually where like they came into enough okay. fortune that they were able to move. That's what it kind of it sounded like you were saying. So yes. she has the dream of being an inventor and saving her marriage with Ed and saving her kind of unhappiness in her relationship, making Ed finally proud of her and happy with her, that the success that could come out of this invention, that's a dream. Mm -hmm. You've also got the dream that she enters into when she becomes the cheerleader character regressing into the past. And that overlaps with the theme of nostalgia and living in the past, mm -hmm. which Ed lives in the past with Norma in a kind of, you know, different way, less literally. <laughs> but that is a thing with so many characters in Twin Peaks is living in the past. And Twin Peaks as a show, even though it was made in the 90s, it kind of always had a little bit of a nod toward the 50s. And then now when people think about Twin Peaks, a lot of younger fans especially look at it as a retro type of show. So it's kind of become this crystallized form of nostalgia at first for the fifties, then for the nineties mm -hmm. and late eighties by proxy. So you've got this character again, living in a dream, representing the sort of nostalgia, dealing with these severe dark elements within her own mind and soul, but it's being masked over by hokey humor that's very Twin Peaks, right? Like this sort of uncomfortable, messy, 
untangling you have to do to get at this thing for the show that is both serious and wacky, both dark and light. That is also Nadine as a person. So I think that, yeah, Nadine might be one of the most Twin Peaks characters if you view it in those kind of lights, which I think is interesting because when I think of like the main characters of Twin Peaks, I don't think of Nadine right at the top. Even in season one, she was almost exclusively a B plot character or even C plot character. Mm -hmm. Do you think in the, in the broad scheme of seasons one and season two, do you think that Nadine was a bigger character or Ed? I think that's... Ed was likely a bigger character than he Nadine. He felt like it. He felt like it, but he that's because... He was the because... bookhouse boy. He yes, went... exactly. Yeah, he had normal plotline. He he was in more places. He was someone who was more woven in with the other characters throughout the overall mm -hmm. story. It seems that, for the most part, the tale that of regret and living in the past was much more solid with Ed. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Nadine's factor of being used for humor... Mm -hmm. I would say kind of diluted that message down. Whether or not one may feel the balance between drama and humor necessary for the tone of Twin Peaks, it still would be more difficult to come to these conclusions without, I would say, a reference such as secret history to sort of like dive into those specific mm -hmm. details. Because other than that, again, I only assumed like we saw Nadine at the beginning of the so story. So I, I agree with you. I think that adding more information about her past does complicate the character in a good way. Mm -hmm. I think it adds more intrigue to the character for me. And even as you're talking about her father being an inventor, it's interesting because the main thing that I remember and the main thing I took notes on was more how her past seemed to be pot potentially negative more than positive. Mm. So even, even what we're given, it is up to kind of the individual listener or reader to determine for themselves what they make of Nadine's background, given Andy's hearsay, right? Given, <laughs> given what Andy's, Andy's told hearsay, Hawk and Hawk reporting and uh, Hawk reporting, but also there is a fair amount of Hawk perspective that I think it yeah. still kind of leads a conclusion. And then Jacoby perspective added on top of that. <laughs> Absolutely. But I think Hawk perspective over Jacoby perspective in respects of the larger oversight Nadine is giving because Hawk does make the point that she's trying to make these inventions. She's trying to do, overall do these things. But at the same time, Ed does not want that. Like, mm -hmm. this is not something Ed wants. Jacoby remarks that her focus on these inventions and how she's dealing with it are actually very clever. She shows intelligence and a remarkable adaptability when it comes to this inventiveness yeah. that she's trying to give off. But at the same time, to what direction, to what ends, well, it makes the whole situation somewhat tragic. Jacoby theorizes, kind of waxing poetic, that the silent drape runners could be in a form of metaphor, that she is trying to silence the troubling things in her mind, and that the silent drape runners represent that. She is hiding behind the dark curtains, metaphorically. Mm -hmm. So he tries to view it as similar to how he views the Ben Confederate situation, that it is a outward symbolic gesture toward an inward struggle. Yes. And so he doesn't necessarily want to shut that down. No. I also think it's notable then that Nadine, while she's focused on the drape runners in season one, she's focused on the future. Mm -hmm. She's focused on making things better for tomorrow. Once she awakens from her suicide attempt and she wakens and has that memory regress, she is now exclusively focused on the past. Mm -hmm. um, she may not think of it as the past, but we know it's her past, mm -hmm. or at least the version of what she thinks the past could have been. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that season one Nadine is looking to the future, and then season two Nadine 
is stuck back in the past. Like you said, do we really know the real Nadine, quote unquote? Nadine's never in the present. We never have a Except present Nadine. Except arguably at the end when she snapped back at to reality. At the very, very end of season two, right? In, wh in which she is actively jealous again. It's right. like something that she has not exhibited through the entire right. series, except you know, unless you count this book with that sense well, of jealousy. Well, Norma, she was jealous with Norma. We saw her she, interactions. She with saw her. some of the overall interactions, but it was under the surface level of a nice smiley attitude. When she bumps into Norma and she, like Norma's even nervous, like how is she going right. to react, but she's distracted with her drape runners. When she's sitting in with Ed and having some overall shakes and a glass break through she's still distracted by the shake itself and the action of itself but as far as like direct mm -hmm. conflict i think the biggest example of that is right at the end where she blows up between ed and norma who are actively physically close in that moment mm -hmm. and going back to kind of the the family history jacoby views her background as more unfortunate mm -hmm. um kind of in line with what at least i remember thinking and feeling when i was reading it because Jacoby paints a picture of the house that she grew up in being full of shame that between the mother's kind of quiet struggles with mental health and the father's kind of turning toward alcohol that she didn't really have a stable background at home. Mm -hmm. She didn't have any sort of stability from her parents. And that's where he thinks that she inherited the sort of manic side from her mother um, and already was struggling as it was, but then the forms of treatment that she would have been given as a teenager were not helping her at all. He found the treatments mm -hmm. of quote-unquote modern psychology to be, in his mind, more barbaric. Mm -hmm. He talks about how Nadine one day in school froze and couldn't move and was locked in place and to the point where they had to carry her to the nurse's office because she was just completely immobile. So even before she was with Ed, we do have signs of those sort of struggles. Mm -hmm. And Jacoby immediately is criticizing how she was treated, but also links that to how her mother was treated very poorly by mental health systems. And while you and I are not experts on this, I, I don't think it's an objectionable thing to say that the way that mental health was viewed and treated in the mid-1900s, not great. No. Not great. And nope. so when, when Jacoby's saying this, I'm inclined to believe him. I'm inclined to believe that, yeah, it's not surprising that the mother was having trouble recovering if those are the treatments they were giving her. And then mm -hmm. Nadine was getting treated very similarly. It's a very shaky foundation to grow up from. And how much did she look up to her father with his business? How much was she aware of the fact that he was a drinker? Did that drinking ever affect her directly or not? This is where I think things are up for debate. And in my mind, when I think of like the drunken father, my mind can sometimes wonder about the darker possibilities, especially considering family dynamics in Twin Peaks can be abusive. Mm -hmm. We don't know if Nadine was abused or not. I just, in my mind, I associate alcoholic father with the potential of that, mm -hmm. either against the mother or against the daughter. So that has me kind of worried in that angle, but we just don't know. And I don't know if Nadine knows. What, it, what traumas is she masking? Does Nadine know at all the traumas she's masking? So when you bring up like how she would get distracted by the drape runners talking to Norma, yes. it's almost, it almost reads to me now, like when she sees Norma and they're, you know, they're both shopping or whatever, mm -hmm. that she just immediately turns to the drape runner as a form of like coping, where it's just like, rather than facing her feelings on Norma and Ed, 
push it all into the drape runner, push everything into the drape runner. That's going to fix everything. Just like <laughs> it fixed my family when I was a kid, when my father invented things, mm -hmm. all of these things we're talking about, I think makes Nadine more interesting and more compelling. So again, I think the book and Mark Frost did well here. Congratulations, Mark Frost. You did it. You did it. We could close the book on this now. It's the end of the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. So what did you think of Jacoby's methods for what he wanted uh, for Nadine? Because the way that he views things, he wanted to wean her off the pain meds through nature walks. He wanted her to do silent meditation, lots of peace and quiet, some massage therapy, a lot of time looking at trees, listening to the wind. Quote, engage in a gentle, mythical, metaphorical truth testing. And he keeps emphasizing it'd be a long road, but there'd eventually be healing. When you, when you think of Jacoby's ideas for what helped Nadine, do you think that would have helped Nadine? Jacoby's methods are very fitting for his character as far as what we know. That is... <laughs> the effectiveness I am unaware of, the effectiveness is something in which I am no expert on, as we've already mm -hmm. made statements on, but I do think it's very much led by the perspective of an individual that wrote a paper on the drug trip that he ended up having in which opened up his mind, and it seems that, for the most part, he's more into a spiritual style of healing, if you will. He feels more naturalistic, almost new agey. Yes. Uh, which I don't know. But, I, I, but mind you, I also find a lot of humor into that because it, it, I, I promise I'll let you continue, but yeah. looking back into Twin Peaks and Twin Peaks' characters and the people in the cast for Twin Peaks, doesn't the account for experiencing that moment of having a shaman lead you through... Mm -hmm. Uh, a psychedelic experience remind you of a certain interview that we saw going through the special yes. features through Twin Peaks. Oh Peace. yes, no, the yes, exactly. I was thinking the I was thinking the same thing. Uh, for for Richard Bamer. For Richard Bamer to clarify. So in in one of the interviews, there's a, it was kind of a collection of interviews. There's a fairly long one that is Richard Bamer on the ZDA, ZDA collection. It might be other collections too, where he is recounting. This, again, is the actor for Ben Horn recounting this trip he had had where he had uh, partaken in ayahuasca and his experiences with that. Very reminiscent for here, which is, again, interesting. And I do think probably on purpose for Mark Frost because we know that Richard Bamer, the Ben Horn actor, was the one who had been in West Side Story with Russ Tamblin, who is Richard Jacoby, you know, Dr. <laughs> Jacoby. So I think that conflating Richard Bamer's experience with Dr. Jacoby's character in a way is kind of a mirroring and it fits. Um, I no proof that Mark Frost even remembered that interview or saw it, but it is similar enough that it's kind of notable. Yes. Uh, Cause yeah, no, it, it definitely reminds me of what Richard Bamer had been speaking about. Uh, what I was going to say though, is that when, when you think back on Dr. Jacoby, knowing that in this book, his methods for Nadine would have involved more natural healing. Mm. Uh, he seems like someone who'd be in favor of like alternative medicines rather than medication. It seems like he's someone who wants to have more of a um, almost hippie-ish kind of view of you You go into nature, you consume natural foods, you take things quietly, you're going to have a slow process, but you need to avoid the modern medicine. You need to avoid the drugs they're going to give you. It's not going to help you. 
when you think of Jacoby that way, does it match up with your idea of Jacoby in season one and season two? Or do you think this is a different take on him? Like, what is, what is your kind of stance? The thing is, is that, for one, I will make a statement saying, I'm not one for these natural elements. I We like scientific backing. I, I like scientific backing. I also, I understand some... Caution whenever it comes to, say, for example, uh, big medical companies that are oftentimes in it for a buck. But for the most part... Almost always in it for a buck. Let's correct that. Yes. I don't think anyone's going to defend big pharma (laughs) to us. So I think Jacoby has a a point. Jacoby does have a point. it's It's not clearly, like, insane. Like, Jacoby has a point... It's just is what he's is what he's doing actually helpful? Is it scientifically backed, mm-hmm. or is this a pet project from a dude who did ayahuasca in the seventies? I think it's a questionable nature with our reality, but inside the realm of Twin Peaks, I believe that he could potentially be very effective, if you will. But again, that's in the realm in which I can verify duck puzz exist in the reality of Twin Peaks. Anyway, there's also the element you could add in though that if his warning was against pills and drugs. There is something you could say about the fact that Nadine's attempt at suicide was overdosing on pills and drugs. Yes, which it seems that maybe the fallback wasn't enough of a fallback. Maybe it was something which was failed. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's another alternate reality with the Twin Peaks It, it seems nature. to match up with what Jacoby had been doing with Johnny Horn because he had always been taking Johnny to go shoot the little targets outside. Yes. And he took a much more slow, gradual approach with Johnny he wasn't around Ben Horn long enough to use that as the best case study. So mm-hmm. I think his, what we know of him with Johnny is probably the best indication of what Jacoby is like. And it's hard because we have that idea of Jacoby, but then we also have Jacoby at the cemetery saying that he doesn't really care about these people. And we've encountered other things like from other scenes where Jacoby flat out like admits that he's just like, <laughs> not really taking this that seriously. There was one deleted scene. I remember we checked out where it was Jacoby um, with Johnny shooting the targets. Yep. We both kind of felt like Jacoby's attitude was that was very like flippant almost. Yes. No, I, I do agree with the overall very tightrope that Jacoby seems to be present mm-hmm. on throughout the series. I would say that the closest thing to probably a more mythical treatment or mythical belief would probably be that one scene where, like, Jacoby is brought into the hospital with his wife, if I'm not mistaken, Mm -hmm. where they're holding rocks, if you will, while they're overall trying to do a practice in that room. That's when things get more mythical. Guided meditation. Guided meditation, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I can see that presence, but at the same time, I don't think that Jacoby was that explored through the series right. other than in like very small doses. Again, one of the best things this, this part of the book does is take these characters who are partially explored and gives them more of their due in a way that I think is generally working. Yes. Um, which, I, again, I, I would praise. I think it's very interesting and telling that Jacoby believes that people basically choose their fate he says we all choose our fate. And whether it's conscious or unconsciously, probably more often unconsciously, mm-hmm. we do choose our fate to the point where he even suggests that Nadine chose to get shot in the eye, that she sensed something going around, going on around her. She didn't want to see it. And he says that there's almost no such thing as an accident, that she had chosen this injury for herself. I instinctively 
um, push against that ideology mm -hmm. because that implies that anything bad that happens to someone, they chose it. If it's like, a, if it seems like an accident, they secretly wanted it, which I think is a very dangerous way to look at people. Agreed. Um, especially if you're working with them in a mental health capacity that you are looking at Nadine's tragic accident and saying, Hmm, you chose this. Now, that being said, could he be right about Nadine? Maybe. This is where it gets tricky. In general, I think this is a really bad way to look at people. I don't think they choose their accidents. I, I don't believe in fate. I don't believe in luck. That's me. Yeah. However, with this show's fictional world, again, mm -hmm. you've already drawn that distinction between Jacoby, if he practiced this in real life versus practicing it in Twin Peaks. Yes. There's a different reality there. And thinking of Nadine's All character- All you have to do is write the fiction that says it works and it works. I think what Jacoby's getting at is that there is a poetry to the idea that someone who wants to turn a blind eye to what is happening to her it's and around her, it's, it's fitting. It's very poetic, and I think it's more so telling on Jacoby's part yes. on his poetic nature, just because I feel it, in my reading, mm -hmm. it's more of the Hurley curse right. more than it is the fault the, of Nadine. Mm-hmm. This is something it's victim that blaming cements. if you take it too far. That's the yeah. concerning part. Yes. But no, it's with the overall idea of the Hurley curse and how this is very poor for Ed in the environment of Twin Peaks itself, I think narratively speaking, it's much more fulfilling to say that this is more so on Ed's part than it is on Nadine's part. Mm -hmm. Not only by holding the gun, but also even though recognizing it as an accident, this still was within his hands. This is still what sort of damns him in the end. It just feels like these families keep repeating themselves through their children mm -hmm. in ways that the book is emphasizing more than the show ever did. And I think I'm still mulling over, even upon second reading, how I feel about that. Because I remarked mm -hmm. with the access guide that if we start taking characters to be just repetitions of their families, it could lessen, for me at least, the impact of the character's choices. Because if every horn burns down their opponent. It removes Ben's choices to a degree. He's just another horn. Whereas if it's Ben doing this as a person, I find that more interesting. And then in terms of reality, I don't believe people are chained to the fate of their families at all. Um, I, I would push against that ideology. I think that for the most part, like generational and how individuals are impacted, it seems that a lot of it is by the grown adults time mm -hmm. that they are the most impacted because from examples from the children if i think of laura palmer yes she was damned by the overall actions and some of mm -hmm. the overall fates of the mental well-being still carried into her but i still think that generally how the character interacts deals with those overall scenarios and has tried to grow from it mm -hmm. i still do kind of see Laura Palmer far different than Leland. Mm -hmm. I also see that through Donna. I also see that through James. I also see it through Audrey. I'm wondering whether or not something is being communicated as a breaking point for the generation right. that though they are still hurting at them, though it is something that is still taking acts, it seems at the very least these cycles are being broken. And maybe the fact that these cycles are broken is where you get the most friction and the most damage mm -hmm. to these overall relationships. The misery of Donna at the end where she's trying to figure out her own overall history. Especially is when is she inheriting the curse of the horns or is she inheriting the curse, a curse of the Haywards? That's another debate too.
with James going off on whatever journey he needs right. to for his own well-being himself for the sake of Laura Palmer with her overall death and how that impacted the environment. And, of course, uh, Audrey being blown up by a bomb. I, 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 uh, I, I inserted that comment uh, about Donna partly because you started off with two characters whose parentage is particularly interesting. Yes. In the sense that if we do go by families repeating... If we do take that line of thinking, yes. which I know is not what you're suggesting as much. Yes. But if we take that line of thinking, would Donna be inheriting the Hayward repetition? She would if it weren't for the ending scenes right. of those like papers could put in questions. I can very easily see her, especially with how she sort of like interacts with people, how she could try to dial it down similar to how her father would. Right. I can see that sort of like complacency come through, but it's only when, say for example, these things start bubbling up where Donna sort of like takes more of a stand and more action. She's less reserved than the rest of her family. Yeah. I do genuinely believe that these cycles at this point in Twin Peaks are being either rubbed against the wrong way, the cogs are going in an right. awkward direction, or things are literally breaking. Well, I was also going to say then that we don't know her mom's story. We don't. We don't. I don't even know her maiden name off the top of my head. We only know potential ideas of this individual who may not be able to walk because an overall emotional state. In fact, to be fair, trying to think through, has this book gone on to talk about the mother's history in any situations? So like Ben Horn, we know the Horn family, do we know Ben's mom's family? We do not know as much for Ben's mom's family. I have not heard anything about Eileen. The Hayward. Hurley there we is... just hear. You know what I'm getting at, right? I know where you're getting at. And the thing is, is that a lot of the information that we are gaining from this, again, how it's archived, how it's being delivered, uh, what Dale Cooper decides to write down and how we're exploring Dale Cooper's notes and also through the eyes mm -hmm. of Truman. How everything is organized. Of course, I would love for every single detail, every single character to be explored, but that's just because I'm a lore junkie. I'm someone who loves mm -hmm. looking through these characters. The omission of them can be notable. The omission of them could just be something mundane. I think really it's going to be a case-by-case -case basis. In this respect, I just want to say sins of the is. fathers. Sins of the fathers. Sins of the fathers. Seems to be the case so far. We'll have to see with Norma's family if we get more about her in the book because we've got the Jennings side through Hank. We've talked about that. We got the question is, are we going to get more of, was it Vivian, the mother, right? Are we going to mm. get more of that side or not? Because that would have a bigger impact on Norma than the man she married. So we I say that, but on the same token, if we take the ruling of the book, like for one, she might distance herself from the family, but Norma by using her position, mm -hmm. Thanks to the history with Hank right, and how she's able to grow from that, that is not involved with the rest of her family. She's very self-made. Yeah, I think that that's self-made. But that could also be a family trait. Could we be. don't know. We know her mother's a self-made sort of person as well yes. as the food critic. This, again, is just making my brain shoot in different directions, which is why I enjoy these kind of conversations. <laughs> because when I think back on these families, and I think it's – I'm going to – fairly privileged position having grown up cis male and having identified as that is that I just kind of take it for granted that we're going through these family histories. Oh, it makes sense to talk about the Packard family. We're talking about the 
Martell family. We're talking and about everyone who's listed and is placed inside the books and which makes sense. But I do think that these relationships, the overall themes we're getting from these relationships and revelations, it does unlock a bit larger conversation for these other families. My point is just that it's generally a male lineage. It is. That we're tracing the lives of these men who lived like 200 years ago and everything is continuing to repeat them. The Renaults are going to be that way because of some dude Renault hundreds of years ago. <laughs> and there are there are prominent female characters. I think Catherine becomes a more interesting light again that she is coming from this background of the Packard Martell fusion as a woman who kind of supersedes both those male lineages and does something with She that. does, but on the same token, if we take the secret access guide right. or the regular access guide. What is that access guide? <laughs> Welcome to Twin Peaks. Welcome to Twin Peaks guide, access yeah. guide. Even when someone takes a stand and is a very important measure inside the family, if you are a woman, you are going to be overshadowed by your right. male counterpart. That happened even in the series. I think maybe even an extra layer unintentionally because Catherine was referred to as woman uh, by the very end. One of her biggest power moves is pretending to be a but, man. <laughs> It, it was. Tojimura. But on the same token, like, using those pieces of history, no matter what, there is a large male-dominated structure, if you will. There's just a lot of is, room for... That is actually, like, called yeah. out by Twin Peaks by some measure by the writers of it. I I, I don't think it's accidental in There's that just a lot of room for quality feminist readings of Twin Peaks for minds that are more equipped than it than I am, especially women commentators, uh, I think could have a lot of fun with this from a feminist lens uh, that I just like to dabble in now and then because there's things in this book that get my mind thinking about how much, like I said, Sins of the Father just keeps playing into these storylines. <laughs> Jacoby, speaking of men, Jacoby, uh, we get a little more of this backstory. Following his parents' divorce, Lawrence Jacoby lived with his mother in Hawaii. So, again, going with gender ideas, he did grow up yeah. with his mother. What was the mother's name, by the way? I didn't write it down. Leilani. Oh. Does that sound familiar? Is that the name of his wife? Yes. Okay, I was wondering that when I yes. listened to it, but I just kind of thought, eh, I, <laughs> I must be misremembering it. Did you check to make sure? Yes. Well, I, I checked the name inside the book. I confirmed it is Leilani for the mother. The wife, however, is Eolani. Eolani. Oh, forgive so me. So they That's are my just fault. similar sounding names, which you could argue is on purpose. You could also argue we're not used to Hawaiian names. I'm not used to Hawaiian names, and I can only look at what's inside of my book. I try not to look back onto Google pages no, for I, the sake of I spoilers. No, I totally understand. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like that an equivalent. Thank you. I guess it's like if someone's father was named Dwayne and they marry someone named Diane. It's probably a similar thing as that where we mm. know the names are different, but I'm assuming <laughs> if you weren't used to those names, mm -hmm. it would probably be like the Lilani Eolani situation. Potentially. They're, they're slightly different names. It is, it is a question if, if that name was chosen on purpose because how similar it is of his wife. You can do a lot of Freudian things there, right? Mm -hmm. So I, and that doesn't seem off course for Jacoby. <laughs> We also find out that his brother, Robert Jacoby, who would go on to write for the Twin Peaks Gazette, he lived with his father. So the two children were separated in terms of custody. Do you have any thoughts on Robert Jacoby? Robert Jacoby, it's a fun sort of like, I guess, magnet to bring Jacoby in, someone who is heavily Hawaiian influenced, mm. and pop him right back into Twin Peaks and also just have his general vibe still give off a missing of home. I suppose. Right. But for the most part, 
it's mainly just a news reporter, if you will. Yeah. I can't really give off much personality. Same thing with Truman's brother. It, it gives an, a larger idea of the vast number of individuals, all X number point one of them inside the Twin Peaks. So it's fun for that respect, but I just don't have much to say about his brother. It's, it's kind of weird. Like, man. it's still just a fun point that we can bring Jacoby back in. It's kind of weird when you talk about new characters in this book because we've got historical figures. Yep. And we've got characters who already were there. Yep. Those really don't count as new people, right? Because there's a basis. Nah. But then you get weird cases like Dougie where it's a pre-existing character, but we knew like nothing about them. We knew nothing Dougie about him. Dougie is practically a new character. He's practically a new character because he is no longer inside the background. Yeah. He's no longer a bit of string of information. But again, I think that that's just going to be very subjective on how much we would value that. Right. So I think that, we, you know... We've got a few, like, new characters, quote-unquote, like Robert Jacoby, who are kind of just neutral. Yeah. Then, depending on the identities of the archivist and Agent TP, they could be new characters. They might also not be. We have speculated. If they turn out to be new characters, do you think that they've been especially memorable, good new characters? Yes. No, I think that for the most part, when it comes down to the independent characters giving off their general thoughts and just being Mm -hmm. present with their own livelihoods making it clear between the Bible passages, between the pop culture sort Mm -hmm. of like things brought up. I I, I think it's enough to give forward quirks of these characters that are far more substantive than someone saying something very quirky in a newspaper, but things are passing by. I I have so much more information of the archivist as well as Agent TP from their back-and-forth interactions, though not ever direct, than I do Mm -hmm. the singular perspective of a few news clippings Mm -hmm. of Robert Jacoby. Now, would they hold up in quality for you versus the characters in the Twin Peaks show? Would they hold up in quality for me? I mean, obviously, they're different mediums. Different mediums is the biggest part for the consideration. Whenever holding up between them, I mean, there are characters that we just see that eat in the corner yeah. and are silent throughout. Uh, excuse like me, Toad. Toad is a better character than anyone in this book. Okay? <laughs> Toad is great. What I'm trying to say we is... We can graft anything onto Toad we want. What I'm saying is that quality assurance isn't something mm. as large in my head. I think that you can slot anyone mm-hmm. into Twin Peaks because there's enough of a range through it. Yeah. So I, I, I think that I can allow these people to exist in my headspace of Twin That's Peaks. perfectly fine. <laughs> Back to Jacoby. So in the 60s and 70s, Lawrence Jacoby developed a controversial reputation for working on a particular book called The Eye of God, Sacred Psychology in the Aboriginal Mind, which again seems to set the course for the rest of his life and career. Yes. He describes his experiences with local hallucinogens in different communities and a short-lived marriage with a chief's daughter. Recounting his experiences with ayahuasca, again, kind of similar to what Richard Bamer had done, uh, Jacoby discusses his experiences in a way that almost makes it seem like he became aware of the lodge spirits or something similar to it because he reports being aware of realities almost in which these other entities dwell. He felt the thin veil separating our normal world from their world thinning, right? Going away. Um, He describes that the world they live in underlies our world's world or coincides with it. And it's just that thin veil separating it. I, I, again, read this as being like the Lodge Spirits. With a lot of the things in this book, there's there's that spectrum or, or Venn diagram you can put in your head of like, 
does this match up with the Lodge Spirits in Twin Peaks? Does this match up with Aliens? Does it match up with both, or is this something else? Uh, and I'm curious, <laughs> when, when you were listening to Jacoby or reading what Jacoby was saying about his experiences with these beings, right? They were tall and humanoid, but they're kind of cold and reptilian, and they, they were drawing him near, but they lacked compassion. He describes it as the presence of God energy. Did you think of those as being aliens, lodge spirits, or something else? I think that, for the most part, we lean more into the mystical nature of spirits, whether they're lodge or not. I think that that's just generally the temptations and judgments of individual flaws in humanity, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But do you link it as being part of the same realm as, like, the man from another place? I think that that's the only realm that I can see. I think that, for the most part, whenever it comes to alien perspective even when it comes to the ufo sightings mm -hmm. i think that thanks to the scene with major briggs of flying through the air through an aircraft only to land into our realm i think that that connects to it i think that the fact that overall the deceptions of mankind either covering it up or intensifying the issues and then the issues themselves mm -hmm. sort of like come back to bite everyone in the ass i think that that for the most part is what's being communicated communicated Commutabated mm -hmm. by Twin Peaks. So, for that moment with Dr. Jacoby, for that moment of experiencing all this at once, I do think that there's just a general natural spirit that just continues to sort of like fold in on itself mm -hmm. that he's experiencing in a very pure form at this time. So, his experience does not seem to be the same as like Major Briggs or Cooper or you know, passing through a gateway. I don't, I don't think that's that ever going to be the same. I think no. that, that it, it's very much a tailored experience for everyone. My question is, is it the same? Like you say a tailored experience, is it the same category? Cause we've linked before that major Briggs, although a different type of experience mm -hmm. was still potentially being tested. Yes. The same way Cooper's being tested. It's just that the test was modified to suit the individual. Do you think Jacoby was going through a test or something different than those two? Because I think so, it was different. I, would say, I think that was different, but I think it's more so in the respects of rather than being tested in the moment, I think more so he ended up watching a movie. He had a vision, if you will. It's also interesting his response emotionally because he describes him as being cold, reptilian, unfeeling, not necessarily evil. But they don't have compassion. There is a neutrality toward people, and right? One thing that we have brought forward multiple times with the Red Room is that sense of neutrality. I would agree with that, yes. My thinking then is that, you know, Cooper, a lot of times, his experiences prior to, you know, literally the end of season two, he does describe in My Life, My Tapes, if we consider that, yeah. the sort of evil that persists, the evil that infected Wyndham Earl and other people. He seems to view a lot of this with doubt and skepticism and, and seems to think a lot of it is evil. I don't know if he thought the giant was evil. We never get what Cooper felt talking to the giant. I don't know if he felt that was cold or not. <laughs> but what I'm getting at is that Wyndham Earl saw the Black Lodge as pure evil, and that's a cool thing. I like that. And then Dale Cooper thought of a lot of the Lodge as evil, not necessarily all of it, and seems to have failed at the end. Major Briggs seems to, through his biblical inclinations, if we're to read that, he seems to have a more balanced view. I don't know if he views the spirit stuff as negatively as the other two do. And then we got Jacoby over here, who senses the coldness of these entities, but wakes up feeling reborn and revitalized and energized. He feels happy. 
I feel happy. And that's the question but, is, um, should you feel happy after experiencing what Jacoby felt? Is that a good sign or a bad sign? Because these entities, <laughs> if, we're, if we're thinking of them as being similar across all Twin Peaks media, right? You've got entities that are going to lead you to evil and corrupt you and possess your body like Bob. But then you've also got entities like the giants who will help give you clues to find your way. But then what if your way leads you to the Black Lodge? I I think that it's very important when it comes to the very subjective terminology whenever it comes to good, but most notably evil. I think that for the most part, like there are individuals who take sanctions into believing in an objective evil. Some people believing in a primordial sense of evil. The word itself- I think Cooper does. I think Cooper does, but at the same time, what is evil and what is seen as evil. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoy our next podcast to rediscuss for seven hours the nature of evil. Make but sure to brush up on your I, Aristotle. I think that that's very important, the perspectives on evil. The of course, ex- of perspectives course. Perspectives of those overall bits of darkness, which, because which, at the end of the day, I think it's going to be whatever forces are counter to either your faith, belief, or things that will stop you from reaching your goal is what's being seen as I, I think a you're general very idea right. I of think, evil through Twin Peaks. If I understand what you're thinking, I think you're very right. Because if, again, we filter Cooper's experiences through his beliefs in both the book, My Life, My Tapes, as well as in the series, he seems to approach these greater spiritual forces with a fascination, with a trust in dreams, but at the same time a fear a fear of a darkness that could possess, a fear of an evil. Mm -hmm. And what did he get when he faced it? Fear of an evil, and it took over him. Wyndham Earl thought of evil as like the coolest thing ever. He's like a (laughs) child in a playpen, and it ended up playing with him. It ended up just completely controlling him. Jacoby, I don't know if he believes in evil that way. He seems to view things so personally and so subjectively that I think he would look at the concept of evil and question whether there is such a thing. So I think when he views it more from a distanced, detached sort of way mm-hmm. and just sort of like kind of like a scientist, but again, not a scientifically backed <laughs> scientist, he repeatedly rejects scientific objectivity in favor of more the momentary experience of the individual. He he is, like you said, watching a movie. Yes, I think he's watching a movie. I think from that distance perspective, it's something that will affect him in a far different way thanks to that. I think the best perspective that I can give, the best example I can give using another piece of media would be the hole in Made in Abyss. It's it's a very... Uh, I, I really enjoyed the overall lore of the anime. I enjoyed the sort of... So it's, it's a things. manga that it's, got recently adapted into an anime. Yes. Continue. But regardless, it's something where people are able to descend into Mm -hmm. the hole itself. But trying to go away from the hole is where you met with a film that is going to... That's very thin. It's very nearly invisible that when you try to poke past that overall film, that's when resistance can come. Mm -hmm. I think Jacoby, with his overall openness and sort of like thought onto that, when it comes to like that idea of evil, is able to pass through it with ease just because there's no resistances based on Jacoby. For the most part, I think Wyndham Earl, in the other extreme example, seeing it as a firm sense of evil, seeing it as a stopping nature, is the one who hits the wall the hardest mm-hmm. when it comes down to it and ends up shredding himself he by results. He has so much preconceived notions of what it's going to be and what it means for him. Exactly. And Major Briggs, then again, we, we have to do a little bit of grasping at straws because we don't know everything of Major Briggs' beliefs. Agreed. But if we do go by the biblical example, we do go by what he talks about and how he talks to Bobby... 
he approaches things with a sense of hope a lot more. Mm -hmm. um, he definitely is skeptical of the U.S. government by the end of season two. He definitely is kind of worried that maybe he's been involved in some bad things. He worries that love may not be enough, but he still persists with that belief. Mm -hmm. Even though he knows deep down there is that fear that it might not be enough, he seems more resolved to move forward with that sense of hope and almost again, kind of have a spiritual victory over things <laughs> that I feel like for him, if every, you know, it's almost like the, the lodge and these spirits, they reflect your personal narrative, right? They reflect what you view um, these things to be going in and kind of refract that almost like a kaleidoscope of colors. Mm -hmm. And I think that Major Brings brings in that hope and redemption and goodness, his vision for Bobby being an example of that. Mm -hmm. Whereas, yeah, Jacoby brings in neutrality. And he gets neutrality. <laughs> and that, I think, is, again, interesting. We've talked before about Jacoby being one of the most questionable characters in Twin Peaks. And I think that this does a lot to, again, solidify. He's not, mwahaha, rub my hands, I am evil. He mm -hmm. isn't like that. Mm -hmm. um, he's reckless and irresponsible and selfish, but also, at the same time, empathetic mm -hmm. toward the concerns. And I think one of the, one of the things in the book that most solidified that for me was his response. When he first brings up Nadine, he says like the poor creatures whacked out and like that's paraphrasing, <laughs> but he, he identifies her as a poor creature. He has sympathy, but he also uses very blunt language of man. She's just whacked out. And it's like simultaneously sympathetic to her, but also crude. Yep. And that is Jacoby. <laughs> That is that is quantifiably one Jacoby, yes. And to kind of cap it off, we find out that in 1981, Jacoby's mother dies. He returns to Twin Peaks. He helps take care of his older brother, Robert, who had been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And he wants to continue his studies with Native American tribes in the region. Interesting, we don't get any conversations between Jacoby and Hawk for that reason. You would think he might want to at some point talk to him. But, alas. Alas. <laughs> there's only so much information that we can receive we have to just trust the archivist at this point speaking of alas Catherine and Josie are also women commonly referred to as lasses 